This is a tasty burger. That's a bingo. God damn, Jimmy. This is some serious gourmet shit. <laughs> Your ancestors are niggas. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scouts. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Shut your raggedy ass up and sit the fuck down. You will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Where is my beautiful sister? And then I just started quoting all the Billy Joel songs I know, which is all of them. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club podcast. I am Patrick Rapole. And yes, I am Jim Laskowski, and with us right now, if you look under your seat, you'll find everyone gets a Tyler Foster. <laughs> Yay! That's a Tyler. terrible prize. With, with us right now is Tyler Foster, one of Oprah's favorite things. <laughs> um, Tyler Foster, you write for? Uh, DVD Talk. And DVD also, Talk. And uh, my friend started a website that's mostly focused on games, but I write for them called Shark Tank with a C. Ooh, sharks. I love where's sharks. The, where's the C? The C is in shark, not tank. The C is in shark. Okay. Hmm. Very good. Tyler is a, a friend of mine from uh, my chud days, and Tyler uh, wanted to join us to talk about Quentin Tarantino. Who's that? Um, he's this Italian fella. Little oh. guy. Big forehead. Mm. Well, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion because he, I think he likes movies and he makes some pretty good movies and we love to talk about movies. So that's how it's going to go. And you can expect that level of depth from our conversation (laughs) throughout the episode. Yeah. What's been going on with you, Patrick? Anything exciting? I heard you got a new couch. I have a new couch. I'm, I'm, I'm lounged on it right now. Like a, like a cat in the sun. Uh, I, uh, I started, a, I started a new blog. I think this is eventually I'm going to leave director's club to do this full time. Cause this is my meal ticket, um, to, uh, uh, internet stardom. I started a new blog called fuck yeah, horror movie boyfriends. Um, where it's just pictures, uh, on it's a Tumblr and it's just pictures of, uh, boyfriends and horror movies. Oh, that's cool. That's it. That's Could a really have. great idea. Fuck yeah. Horror movie boyfriends dot I believe. Hmm. And uh, you'll see everybody's uh, got to run a run a run a stupid Tumblr. Yeah, yeah. You get you get you'll see Steve McQueen from the Blob. Uh, you'll see um, Johnny Depp from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, all all the horror boyfriend grades. Mm. Was that Dreamboat from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street four and five? That was Alice's boyfriend. Uh, Danny Hassel. Danny uh-huh. Hassel, one of okay. the, you know he was a very smart actor because they just named his character Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a it was a Tony Danza kind of situation. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I remember when when uh, Russ and I tried to keep up on a Tumblr called Fuck Yeah That Band, where we just it took forever to do sometimes, but we like made mixes of our favorite bands and just uploaded them for free. And when I checked the site like a few months ago, because it's we haven't updated in like a couple of years at this point. All, all media fire took everything down. Sure, so there's sure. no point to even have it up at all Copy, anymore. Copyright infringement. Yeah, that's sad. I recently discovered I think the Shins are my favorite band. 
Really? I listen because yeah, I listen to every record. And I was like, I I don't dislike any song, and I find something to love about almost everything about their music. Lyrics, melody, uh, I just I don't know. There's something about them that is it's hitting every level for me. Is it because they're the whitest, most generic indie rock band possible? <laughs> No, is honestly, it, is this I, an evolution Wil- of your love of Wilco, the other white? No, 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 no. That's the thing. It's like I, I was realizing, album. like the last three Wilco albums, I don't remember a thing about them. I don't care to go back to them, and yet I've been saying like, oh yeah, they're my favorite band, and no, that's not true. It's not because their last three albums have been very forgettable. And why would I declare them my favorite band if I'm not passionate about hearing their music as of late? Yeah, and I'm not even excited about the the new album coming out this year. Whereas, like, I was listening to Shins, and I'm like, wow, this, everything about it's great. It really uh, is. Me and, me and you just have wildly different tastes in music. And to me, the Shins, to me, I mean, you must, you must be in heaven being a Shins fan, because to me, the, the music in every single trailer for a sort of major indie kind of movie, it, it just sounds like the Shins. It just sounds like those kind of arpeggio, uh, you know, uh, guitars and the and the ukulele and the and the piano and there's like a tambourine in the background. Like the music for all trailers everywhere just sounds like the Shins to me. It just sounds like Coldplay to me. Like the like they always cut to that Coldplay song. No, no, no. That cold. You're thinking about indie movies from like 2003. Um, nowadays it's a it's a little lighter they're trying to basically everything sounds like the arrested development theme song but uh, (laughs) but filtered through the shins um Hmm. yeah the shins just the shin just sounds like it's it's just sounds like garbage to me (laughs) because it sounds like the it sounds like the shits i know i'm sorry a little bit it's 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 not even that it's like offensive it's that it's the most inoffensive thing ever to me Hmm. that's why i don't i like i like I don't know. We have different tastes you, of music. You like aggressive, energetic yeah. rap music. Yeah, yeah. And punk music. That too. You know? Like I think if, of indie trailers, I, I picture Plinky, uh, Casio-sounding keyboards. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. part of the Shin sound. <laughs> no! Yeah, it just is. Just a little bit. Just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, just a tasteful, tasteful dash of the keyboards. Um, little electric piano in the background with the... Yeah. I think it's because I grew up with, you know, primarily hearing 70s A&R rock, like just kind of bland, almost like Jay Ferguson and I mean, not not necessarily James Taylor, but like the stuff playing in my house was not loud, crazy punk music. Right. And even my sister was like, you gotta hear Journey, you know, I mean, this, it was just, <laughs> I just didn't get exposed to a lot of that crazier stuff till later in my life. So yeah, I really I don't, don't know how to explain my taste, my, cause all my, my parents own six albums. And they, they only listened to six albums, and one of them was just an album of marching band music. It was <laughs> it was <laughs> all just Sousa or something. No, it was all just college fight songs. I think my dad got it like free with a copy of Sports Illustrated or like a subscription to Sports Illustrated or something. Jock was, jams? Uh, no, not no. I wish jock jams. <laughs> I wish everybody dance now was playing at my was was playing at my house. But so. There is the marching band music, which my dad literally did just put that CD on sometimes, like some Sundays. There was Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Um, there's Born to Run. Uh, there is Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Mm-hmm. There's uh, James Taylor, Greatest Hits, Dan Fogelbor- Fogelberg, Greatest Hits, or whatever the guy's name is. Um, and uh, there's a Neil Diamond Christmas album. <laughs> right. 
No, I shouldn't be too like dismissive of my parents' taste. My dad did love Frank Zappa at least, so yeah, there you there go. was some weird some weird stuff going on. Yeah, there's some weird. My 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 father's never heard of Frank Zappa. Hmm. Maybe he's, I hope he's at least heard of Moon Zappa. No, no, my okay. my my father hasn't even heard of Dweezil. Oh, it's <laughs> a real shame. You know, Patrick, we were nominated for something. Isn't that crazy? What were we nominated for? Go ahead. Go ahead. Say it. <laughs> say the name of the, the, the governing body that nominated us. And don't call it Podbelly like you did <laughs> 10 minutes ago. I'm sorry. I just came back from Podbellies. That's probably why I said that. I see. Um, it is the first annual Podbody Film and TV Podcasting Awards. Um, I don't know that. Uh, all I know, uh, uh, the, the the person who put this together, as far as I know, is just named Jape Man. Uh, is, that's that's his moniker, I suppose, on Facebook, and um, he's a huge fan, and he's got good taste in uh, movie podcasts, that's for sure, because uh, a lot of our former guests and cohorts are amongst the nominees, and it's quite an honor, I must say. I was I was taken aback by it. I was like, wow, that's really cool. If I if I remember correctly, the Podbody group, they're basically an offshoot of the of the uh, the the group that does all the Nobel Peace Prize nominations. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And if you win, you get a year's supply of Potbelly sandwiches. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, that would be further amazing. further <laughs> further confusing. Like they already have a big problem of people calling them Podbelly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've been telling everybody around. It's like, Podbelly! <laughs> You've been telling everybody that you got nominated for a Podbelly? <laughs> Podbelly pig. Oh, man. What this did you imagine? First, this is their first annual awards, and you're already you're spreading misinformation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I think they're, they... Have, yeah. They have a sense of humor, I hope. Yeah, and so uh, I think the... I don't know. I think it's about a month, and the awards will go out. So before then, like I said, I, 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 like I like I said on the uh, Facebook page, I think we're just going to buy them out, Miramax style. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna pull Shakespeare in Love. Um, everyone's going to be expecting, you know, like film junk or something, but we'll just sweep them because uh, we spent all the money. Hmm. There's a few on here I haven't heard, but I mean, once we uh, guess get the voting process finalized i'm not we'll post about that because uh as far as i know the the best podcast category is voted on by the listeners so keep that in mind folks if you want to vote for us other than uh, just yeah do we get vote a trophy for us. <laughs> uh, i don't know what does a pod belly trophy look like it's a good question is it a, is it a, is it a pot bellied pig on his back like sort of looking all cute it could be another drawing on the wall of like you know congratulations directors club because that's the that's the picture that's posted on the blog. It's uh, somebody drew uh, like the first annual Podbelly Film and TV Podcasting Awards on the wall. Oh, um, yeah, it's a total DIY kind of approach, I guess, right. to awards. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Banksy's mm-hmm. running the whole thing secretly. Ooh, I think J- yeah. I th- you think Jape Man is maybe Banksy. Hmm. So at any rate, um, that was that was funny. That that <laughs> it's weird, funny, and exciting. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why would anyone would give this crappy podcast an award. Oh no, uh, no, 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 no! You know, just be neutral, Patrick. Don't say we suck, and don't say that we're awesome. Just say, yeah, eh, we're pretty good. No, no, you know, no. I, I mean, mean that's, 
if if anyone should get a, a TV and film podcast award, it should be the people who talked about uh, what my dad, what albums my dad owned uh, growing <laughs> up. And I don't know if there are a lot of podcasts. There, not a lot of podcasters would 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 have the uh, audacity to record a Friday the Thirteenth commentary with their mother. You know, I mean, I think that's something special. Well, if that episode got nominated, I would have been, I I I, I would have actually been choked up and proud. Mm. <laughs> The episode that got nominated was our best of 2013 part one, and it makes me think again that maybe we should be drinking it for every episode that we record because people seem to love it when we're drunk. Yeah, and well, rambling. It's, it's the same way when when uh, when uh, Robin Williams had a problem, people would you know set and he was famous when he was doing comedy. People would send him up shots because they wanted to see the famous person get drunk and act like an asshole. Mm. So I mean, maybe just maybe just people just want us to dance for them, and I don't dance for anybody. Pod belly, hey hey, pod belly. I'm not dancing for you or anybody. I'm not your monkey. You don't see me in a in a, in a, in a monkey suit. You, what are you, an organ grinder? Now, I'm not dancing for you or anybody. You can take your pod mm-hmm. bellies. You can go write them on someone someone else's wall. I don't want them. I don't want them. Thanks, Jape man. We really appreciate it. Um, and I think I think Patrick only dances when he's mopping the kitchen, I like t- uh, in, like in Honey I Shrunk the Kids. Oh my God, that's a great scene! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great scene. I yeah. will say I do like it when you are drunk. I I can't remember what, I can't remember what you said, but I have a vivid memory of uh, of Jim being drunk and talking about the apartment. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, and I also I my one of my memories is like Meek's cut off and just like prolonging it forever and be like, you know what? I could go to your bathroom right now and get a glass of water. <laughs> that's how. Like, I mean, that's the gym. That's the that's the patented gym way. Is you like to you like to build up suspense for no yeah. reason. You like you like to address everyone as as if all of our listeners are the graduating class of 2014 and you're going to give them some words of wisdom before they go out into this big crazy world and you want to say you know there are a lot of films about (laughs) dystopia and there are a lot of films about the dark underbelly of the perfect white picket fence communities of the suburbs but there's only one film coming out this year, starring Jeff Bridges, that I'm excited to yeah. <laughs> Did you just walk <laughs> off? <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I'm the Hitchcock of conversation. I yeah. just like to draw Very out suspense. Good. You're like Hitchcock if there wasn't a bomb under the table. <laughs> mm. Okay, well I, then maybe I'm the De Palma or Richard yeah. Franklin. The, the Haneke. You're the Michael Haneke of conversation. Oh, no. <laughs> that means I want to fuck with everybody. <laughs> isn't that, isn't this, isn't this whole thing <laughs> been your little mind games? Jim, can we talk about what uh, we watched this week? I don't know if we can. I'm scared. This song is gonna change your life.
instead of the town We're at dawn on way out Only comfort gets wrong Down by law of fear Blast from the past cache crank The majestic the ref A river runs through it The wind rises And if you're wondering What we watch this week Well I bet we watch movies But I also saw Mr. Ed and I Think that the rest of my life will be better for it, despite what Patrick says. New guy, Mr. Mom, look with Sky. Domino's separate lives. Just one of the guys, Mr. Lonely. These are some of the movies we watched. Now let me turn off the song. So we can talk for too long about movies. Um, we can do that, but I think Tyler's got to do some talking here. So, okay. Yeah. What, what you are want you me to... watching? Uh, well, I didn't watch all of them this week, but I did go to the Seattle International Film Festival, and I saw a bunch of movies. And unfortunately, most of my choices were not very good, in my opinion. Uh, the one did that you shot... To, did you have to watch them in the rain? No. Okay, good. Uh, they were indoors. Good. Did you have to watch uh, them while listening to the theme song from Frasier? <laughs> no. I <laughs> okay, did not. We're, we're out of Seattle things. Go ahead. No, nobody was forcing Starbucks into my gullet while I was watching them. Mm. Uh, I mean, the one that surprised me the most is uh, Mood Indigo. I've talked to Patrick about how much I like Michelle Gondry. And um, if you've seen the trailer for Mood Indigo, it looks like basically a Michelle Gondry movie. It's got all these sort of fantastical, cutesy kind of things going on in it. Um, and it is one of the most depressing movies <laughs> that I have Ooh, ever seen. Really? It is just relentlessly and utterly downbeat. And I, I can't quite figure out what the what the dramatic or thematic point of being so downbeat was. Like, I, there's, it's, it's two things. It's first, first of all, I, I, I know this is based on a book, but I don't know whether or not um, the fantasy stuff is in the original book or if that's what Michel Gondry brought to it. Um, I'm inclined to think that that's what he brought to it because it's so saturated with his style. Um, but if it is what he brought to it, I, I also don't understand what about the story that is left behind when you take all that away was worth making into a movie because it doesn't really seem to have any dramatic thrust or conflict. It's just very straightforward and that baffled me uh he's actually in it and he's really funny in it um acting but that's that was the only bright spot in that movie and i was really what's the plot of mood indigo uh the plot is um this guy uh played by um i i forget what his name is um it might be boris vian but that might be the supporting guy but uh the main guy he falls in love with audrey tattoo and um they meet at a party, and it's love at first sight. Uh, they get married, and a flower floats in through the window and settles into her lung and starts to grow into um, a lily. And as it grows, she starts to die, and that's really all there is to it. And he's really bummed out about that. That, <laughs> wow. is, that is the most Michelle Gondry-esque uh, terminal illness I've ever heard of in my life. I mean, I can imagine that that specific 
Affliction was part of the book, but I don't know how much of the rest of the style of the movie was from the book. Interesting. And I remember for our Michelle Gondry episode, though, we were reading that synopsis, and that was when you sound like uh, most deaf imitating Michelle Gondry. That was really, really funny. I don't um, recall. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember that synopsis be like, wow, that's uh, that's kind of a Michelle Gondry sort of uh, staple is like something kind of uh, surreal and you know fantastical, but I'm sure he's going to ground it in some sort of like organic way. Like, I mean, is it is it you know more along the lines of something like Science of Sleep? Because I think Science of Sleep is kind of a depressing movie. Um, um, I mean, it's got I some mean, I- hilarious moments, but overall, it's sad. The main the main thing that I think that or that that I was missing is that you know the science of sleep even if it is uh, sort of a downer is that it's focused on the characters it's telling you something about the characters through the way they act and I mm-hmm. really I really don't see what it's telling us about um, any of the characters in Mood Indigo because the the main character is just mopey the whole time and Audrey Tattoo really doesn't have much to do except be really charming and. Yeah, I just don't. I'm just totally baffled by what the movie was going for. Is it at least interesting visually, and because that's one thing, obviously, it, it is really interesting visually. Uh, but most most of that is in the first like third of the movie, and then mm-hmm. as the movie the movie story gets darker, the visuals get really dark. Wow, I think this played at the Chicago Critics Film Festival, didn't it, Patrick? Because um, I think it did, and I didn't yeah. hear like uh, the sort of uh, barrage of uh, you know positive feedback. At least, like I mean, from like when the, the screening of they came together and other movies that played there, I wasn't like hearing the kind of buzz that I would expect from. I didn't even see like um, I mean, we saw you and I both saw his last uh, Noam Chomsky documentary. Yeah, but I, I never got to see the we and the I. And I was kind of interested in that, but it never like got a huge release or anything. And I don't even know if uh, it came out on Blu-ray or whatever. But uh, it almost it almost seems like he's kind of going downhill as of late. I don't know. Well, I mean, he I mean, just, I don't think he has the uh, necessarily the same following. And when you when you make Eternal Sunshine, what's what's that now? Twelve years ago, ten years ago, yeah. Um, and then you follow, you know, you follow that up with. Be kind, rewind, which not many people liked, and then the next movie people see is so many years later, and it's Green Hornet, and no one likes that. I mean, it's just yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, I'm I see that's the thing is I'm I'm a huge defender of Green Hornet. I don't think I, it's terrible. Um, there are things I, about it I like. Well, the thing that the thing that I think that I feel about it that most people really don't seem to feel about it, even if they like it, is that I I sense Michelle Gondry's fingerprints all over that movie from mm. beginning to end, like. Uh, it's mostly in the the neuroticism of a lot of the characters. Yeah, um, I could see that. And their fight scene together was very Gondry like, and just term, in terms of being sort of slapdash and haphazard and just kind of yes, messy. I, I, I agree. I'm, the movie was kind of slapdash and not well put together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm holding out hope for him because I just I'm such a huge fan and. You know, the more and more, like, as, as time has gone on and I, like, go back and discover that, like, a lot of my favorite directors, a lot of, you know, uh, movie nerds would probably attest to a lot of those music video directors have gone on to do some great stuff. I mean, I didn't even know that the, 
uh, Jonathan Glazer, who did Under the Skin, was a f- did a bunch of Radiohead videos that I loved until just this past year, and I just keep going back and like, wow, a lot of these music video directors really evolve as interesting storytellers. Well, the flip side the flip side of that is that you you had David Fincher and you had Spike Jones and you had Michelle Gondry and Chris Cunningham and all these people, and then now they're still doing that. And like Francis Lawrence and uh, the guy Samuel Bayer, the guy who made the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, and uh, Joseph Kaczynski and Carl Rinch, the director of Forty Seven Ronin, all those guys are music video and commercial directors, and they're not like it's not still happening. Yeah, but music. Okay, well, here's the thing: being a music video director in the early to mid '90s, which is sort of the heyday of all those people, or I guess the sort of midish to late '90s. But at any rate, being a music video director then was this is going to be playing on television. People are going to be flipping channels, and you want them to stop when you, they see this. So you got to catch them visually. You have to do something you never seen before. That you have to do something that's funny. You have to entertain people. What people. There's no money in the music industry now, so music videos are now. Can you make this look cool very quickly and very cheaply? And that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what the people that's what the training is. So, whereas Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones were sort of like they saw music videos as just uh, exercises in imagination and 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 style and aesthetic and stuff like that. You know, the the new crop of music video directors music music videos are this is how you can prove to people that you're not going to waste their money. Um, and that you can, you know, work on a set and be with celebrities and stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah there's not, there, That's sad. What was the last really good music video you saw? I think the last really good music video I saw was, um, that, like, a lot of people talked about was probably, like, a couple years ago, the Tyler Creator, uh, music video that he did himself. And it was just, <laughs> you know, and then... The last that was, one that I, the last one that I can think of, and I don't know who directed it, was a couple of years ago. It was by a band called uh, Metronomy, I think. And hmm. I don't know. That was a weird. It's hard to describe. But there's like subtitles floating on people and ping pong balls hitting people. And I think it, I, I, if I remember correctly, it's it's sort of like a karaoke video, and the bouncing ball is bouncing across the words, but then it gets stranger and stranger. Huh. But that was that, that. I mean, that's like three to five years old now. Uh, like the you mentioned, uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer earlier, which I is a movie I don't like. Um, but the thing that and the thing that struck me about people who did like it and at least said, well, it's got these great sequences in it. And Mark Webb was also a music video director. And yep. the thing that struck me about it is that the best sequences in Five Hundred Days of Summer visually are three to five minute segments that are all set to music. Ooh, yeah. good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a, Mark Webb is the guy. He directed the uh, My Chemical Romance music videos. Oh uh, no, he did the Yellow Card music videos. Um, I mean, and there's hmm. some music video directors who they wanted to make shitty movies, but they make great music videos. The the couple who made 1979, you know, music video went on to direct five, uh, uh, not 500 Days of Summer. They wanted to direct Little Miss Sunshine, the 500 That's Days right. of Summer of That's that. Right. You know, like. That's yeah. That's a oh, that's a shame because that 1979 video they did is just. It might be my favorite music video of all time. Yeah, yeah same. That what? What the hell? I mean, Little Miss Sunshine, and I think they've done a couple of really bad movies after that too. And Nan- just, Nanny Diaries, maybe. Oh no, I think that was actually the people who made American Splendor. Oh, that's right. Okay, I yeah. forget I, these these husband wife couples. They uh, duos. Yeah, they, they are. I heard. I heard the the American Splendor. Uh, directors rebounded a little 
You know, they they made this movie last year called uh, Girl Most Likely with Kristen Wiig. I didn't see it, but I heard it was decent. Mm, okay. Yeah, but uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, again, yeah, music video, music videos just aren't what they are. So they're not the training that they used to be. All music videos now are just, again, orange and teal, high contrast, shallow depth of field. You know, like it's all, there's all they all kind of look the same, and that's because they're no, no longer viewed on televisions in people's living rooms. They're viewed in people's laptops in their laps, so they just look like all web videos look. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, I don't know. And then every, uh, every, every once in a while you get the illusion that music videos are still good because one of the people who started in music videos comes back and directs a music video. Yeah. yeah like, like Jonas Acker, Jonas Ackerland did the, the telephone video, and that was popular. What was the telephone? Oh, is that the Lady Gaga one? Yeah, the like 13-minute video. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess it's popular. Uh, I thought that was a pretty bad video. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I never check in like when when new bands put out records and stuff. I never like you know see wh- if they put out like music videos for you know their their new songs or anything anymore. It's like I mean with MTV not practically being non-existent, I just uh, I don't make that kind of effort to even seek out music videos the way I used to, and it's kind of sad because I miss them. I miss yeah. good ones. I, I mean, that's generally... I listen to all my music on YouTube. I'm not on Spotify or anything like that. So I end up watching a fair amount of music videos, but they tend to be all the same. Mm. Not missing much, huh? No. Right. So there, there was that, and then uh, the best thing that I saw at SIF was, an, was a, a revival um, of The Stuntman uh, by Richard Rush. And it's got Peter O'Toole and Steve, Steve Railsbeck. And Steve Railsbeck plays a Vietnam vet who... Um, He's wanted for some crime that's sort of mysterious, and he spots the police. He runs away. He runs onto a movie set where Peter O'Toole is directing a movie, and um, uh, Peter O'Toole's like the last stunt that he just did killed the stuntman, and the cops are coming and they're aware of it. Um, and he has Steve Railsback poses that guy so he doesn't get shut down. And uh, over the course of filming the rest of the movie, the stuntman becomes convinced that um, because he's the only one that knows about that deception, that uh, Peter O'Toole is going to kill him too. And uh, it's really surreal and it's really fantastic. And I thought, I just, I, I, I don't know what I expected, but it was not that. I think Jim would really mm. like it. I think you'd really like it because it does a lot of um, yes, playing with reality and. Uh, uh, revealing the artifice either in the movie or to just just to the audience, um, either the artifice of you know they'll be Steve Railsbeck will be in this surreal scene and then it'll turn out they're filming a scene from the movie or revealing the um, artifice just to the viewer of the fact that the stuntman is also a movie and it plays with your head. Huh. I like a good meta mind fuck. If yeah. that's kind of it sounds like it and it's funny I'd never ever heard of this and really? I'm like whoa it's gotten nominated and stuff and yeah it's never every now and then there's like a big surprise like when I told you that like yeah Larry Cohen I don't really know a lot about that guy I've only seen a couple of his movies oh, yeah, like, what? yeah yeah well I mean you watched so many horror movies from the 80s I I know right the fact How that you that... hadn't seen Q the Winged Serpent like just blew my mind yeah I know I feel bad I, I feel like I should I should just quit right now. Yeah, you should. Like this, uh, no, I, I, I haven't no seen that. I haven't seen the stunt man either, but I've heard good things. Yeah, mm-hmm. not only not only is it surreal, but it's also really really funny. Peter O'Toole is hilarious in it. I love and, Peter O'Toole, man. God, he's so mm-hmm. good. Uh, my favorite year, one of my favorite performances of all time. He is so good in that movie. 
Patrick, have you seen my favorite year? This is the uh, Mike Lee movie. Mm, Richard Benjamin. It's uh, Peter O'Toole plays uh, oh, like a washed up actor, and he tries to have a, a comeback. It's it's a really really funny movie, and and I th- I, I think you like it. it's it does have like kind of a Mel Brooks approach to humor, but not in like kind of this uh, um, <laughs> you know ridiculous over the top way. It's actually kind of grounded, and that's what I love about that movie. But it's one of my favorite Piro Tool performances, and I should see more movies with him because he's awesome. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie. I guess I'm not too familiar with him. I was thinking of Another Year, which is I know another movie you love. Oh yeah, that's right. But, uh, no, I have not seen my favorite year. Mm. And the last movie I was going to talk about is Twenty Two Jump Street. Um, oh, which I, nice. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know Patrick was expressing his disillusionment with Hollywood. I think that Twenty One Jump Street is one of the best like mainstream movies they made in a long time. Every time I watch it, I'm still really overwhelmed by how clever it is and how insightful it is and mostly how uh positive it is even in being you know two guys bickering a lot it, it has really uh a nice warm kind of humor to it um 22 jump street is not as good as the first one uh they really push the meta stuff a lot um but it is really funny um and it gets funnier as it goes along I I wish that the movie was paced a little better. It feels like it doesn't have time for character the way the first one does. But um, yeah, it, it was definitely you know comedy sequels are generally terrible. So this one was pretty good. Yeah, I'm a fan of the first one. Um, what's the director team? That they're the same ones who did the Lego Movie, right? Yeah, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Did they write this and the? Because I, uh, I, I know they wrote the Lego Movie too. Uh, they, um, I think, I think they sort of got uncredited work on the first one, and okay. they're they're not credited on this one. So, uh, the, hmm. I mean, the thing that is interesting is somebody forwarded me uh, two previous drafts of the first movie. One was just a serious. One was just a reboot of the show. It was just straight. <laughs> everyone was every everything the way it was in the show, and then the second one was a previous draft that had uh, Michael Bacall and Jonah Hill's name on it, but it was. It was entire, entirely different from the version that they made. It was incredible how different it was, except it had exactly one major detail that was still in the finished film, which is that the drugs tasted like Doritos. <laughs> but everything else was different, and also that all alternate version was really, really bad. I was shocked uh. at how, ba- how bad it was in comparison to the version that they made. So that... that I mean, who knows how old that draft is, but that made me think that those guys probably had a pretty big influence on the way the finished film turned out in terms yeah, of the script. F- the first one, I, I know that uh, former guest uh, Eric Childress was like, I just think that movie is just a bunch of dick jokes, and that was it. <laughs> I was like, no, I thought, I thought it was really clever and well done. And I mean, and, I mean like, obviously, again, it's subjective, but I just I, I laughed consistently throughout that movie. And it surprised me, too. And I, I mean, I, I tend to put... A lot of stock in, in Jonah Hill as like a good improv guy and you know in comedies and everything and but uh, you know Channing Tatum really surprised me and I thought it was a really well written comedy that's and it wasn't anything to like say oh this is groundbreaking but for what it was it was very good and I think the one detail that that of the first movie that gets overlooked a little bit that's really key to everything I think everything that makes it good is that is when they get their identity switched and uh, Channing Tatum has to 
fallen with the nerds and vice versa because yeah. the the, la- the lazy version of that movie is just they fall into their old high school persona. Mm-hmm. Right. There's the a movie- little there's a little character depth that's that's surprising <laughs> that happens. You know, and I think that's that's rare. To, I mean, most most comedies just like aim to you know make you laugh, but and sort of push the characters aside, or at least not make them fully dimensional. Um, and I, I think it's just it's their their personalities sort of mesh in that world very well. Like they, they they play off of each other better than a lot of comedy teams recently. Oh, and if if anyone does uh, listen to this before they've seen the movie uh, Twenty Two, uh, stay until the very end of the credits. The, the whole credits are great. Mm. And don't go to Wikipedia if you don't want to know the cameos because I just spoiled that for myself. <laughs> well, I, 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 and I also heard that uh, yeah, there was an article about Brad Pitt being in it. He's not in it, and I don't know what happened with that. Huh? It okay. seems it sounds like they they shot something, but I guess you'll have to wait until the Blu-ray to see it. Mm. Wow, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, it should be fun summer fun, kind of like sh- edge, sh- edge of tomorrow. I should say, <laughs> I have no faith in Hollywood doing anything other than movies. I mean, other than comedy movies. Oh, okay. Because yeah. comedies, uh, at least comedies by white people, are <laughs> are the movies that where studios go, okay, you guys seem to know what you're doing, and they sort of just are hands off. Um, and so people who are genuinely funny get to make movies that are genuinely funny, and also because they're not as expensive as big movies, the studios you know sort of tire hands off. Now, when it's a when it's a black comedian, that's different because then it's a big risk, and it's we gotta we gotta hit all the demographics because this is our one black movie we're doing this quarter, <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera. So like you know those movies are tend to be more shitty because studios are are in, more involved. Um, but like for example, I saw a, a, a comedy movie, a Hollywood comedy movie recently, just called Edge of Tomorrow. And uh, for some reason, they made it an action movie, even though the only good parts were comedic um, and all of the parts with the action were the worst thing ever. Uh, they decided that they it would be better if they spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, you know, to, as, on special effects that look like crap um, and action scenes where you can't see what's going on and sort of kind of tense – uh, kind of like a, a plot where you there you don't know if they're going to be able to save the world or not, which is stupid because it's so high stakes that it just doesn't register as a human thing. Um, you know, it, it, that movie was basically like someone took an Xbox game and then they added some parts that were funny. And I mean, you know, if, if they just let it be a comedy, it would have. I mean, it would have been a retread of Groundhog's Day, but it would have at least not had all those shitty parts. Hmm. I would, I would, I don't have any argument against the the action scenes. I do think that you know they are totally generic and forgettable. I mean, on top of that, I saw it in three D, so the action scenes were were generally not coherent anyway. Um, but I feel like uh, the thing that kept the suspense up for me was more the the ticking clock of how long his. Um, his 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 abilities would last. So it doesn't. I guess the the idea of saving the world. Uh, I'm thinking of this right now. That that uh, that's not so important. But uh, I did feel the the weight of this of of the idea that his ability would go away and that it would be too late. I don't know. I'm in partial agreement with that. I mean, I like I I felt a little bit more of the uh, oh man, it has to go down this sort of action movie route with the third act. And just kind of how things play out 
Um, I mean, I, w- I will definitely agree that the action sequences aren't, like, amazing. But, you know, as they were happening, I wasn't like, oh, this is terrible. You know, I, th- I, just, I just kind of accepted it basically because that's a premise that I'm kind of, like, already sold on. And, you know, you're right. It is really funny. It's nice to see, you know, Tom Cruise actually, um, you know, uh, put forth some comedic chops again and not take things so seriously. And I don't know. I, I like the chemistry between the two of them a lot. And I, I felt some investment in what was taking place. But I think, you know, the, the third act is where I felt a little a little restless just because, like, of the decision is, okay, let's wrap it up this way. But you know, I also keep hearing like, oh, it's such such a great sort of um, video game milieu of sorts, like to create. You know, it's it, just the idea of resetting and getting better, and you know, sort of evolving the way he does. And I, I like that idea, and I like, you know, that we don't get uh, kind of overdone with like, okay, we have to keep going back to this exact same place over and over again. It's nice that. Uh, there are moments in the movie where, like Tom Cruise, you know, we're in a new scene, but he's like, "Oh yeah, I've already done this already," you know. And I, I just think there's like little uh, things that make it a little uh, make it exceptional in that it's a science fiction action movie comedy <laughs> that all the elements kind of work more or less. But I will agree, like the action part is the least successful. Yeah, uh, when when you, you know just the tropes of seeing a lot of time travel movies, um, the the first time that he's going through the day, he, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, these are the conversations I'm going to see 25 yeah, times before the exactly. movie's over. But the movie basically assumes you understand that and just sort of skips over all that, which right. is really really refreshing. It's, Agreed. I mean, obviously, they're. I I never had any idea that they were going to show every life he lived because that's just not a plausible thing. The movie would be seventeen years long. Um, <laughs> well, no, uh, but like in 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 Groundhog Day, for instance, you see that guy the the guy he runs into the hallway eighteen times. You know, uh, you think the groundhog will come out and he has to walk past him. It's it just I, you, there's a there's a lot of those setups, but they don't really rely on them that much. But they don't really pay off, is what you're saying. That was one of the craziest <laughs> things to me, was that, like, they, like, well, during, when that first day, I had this terrible sinking feeling when that first day was so full of, like, little details, because I'm like, wait, how are they going to, how am I going to keep watching this over and over again? And the answer is, oh, mm-hmm. I guess we don't really care. Like, we're, like all these people, oh, he's not going to really get to know them any better. They're just still going to be the exact same one-dimensional sort of uh, characters that they were at the beginning, and I, I, I just feel like a smaller scale would have made this movie so much better. And it's just so frustrating that the just the way the Hollywood machine works is it can't be a smaller scale, and you have to waste so much time on the fucking the rules of time travel. Like that's the one great thing about Groundhog's Day is that never once. Oh yeah, and obviously in a, in this situation, it, unless you want it to be exactly like Groundhog's Day, in which he just had to keep he just found himself keep reviving. You know, uh, until he saved the world or whatever. Like, you have to give a little bit of exposition, but all of the oh, they're a hive mind. This is their power source. This is this. This is that. But like, also, I don't know why. Like, oh, that's... did you did you get blood on you? Some of their blood on you right before you died? Okay, it happened. Like, that's the most reproducible thing in the world. Uh, oh, never mind. No, they came up with some like weird thing where it's like, oh, that one was the special one that only happens every once in a million. Blah blah blah. At any rate, it's just there's. It's just you a movie like this, and it isn't a deep movie. It's not Groundhog's Day in that way, and the characters aren't interesting, really. Um, the characters are pretty much standard stereotypes of an action movie, 
Um, I just like, okay, well, they, at least you have a fun premise and you can have fun with. And they do have fun with it, but like they have fun with it in spite of what the movie is, which is a big action movie where he has to save the world. And I agree, there's a version of this movie that could have held the audience's hand more, but I think there's a version oh, yeah. of this movie that could have been way, way better. And But that version couldn't come out of Hollywood, and that's what bums me out about Hollywood. And that's why this uh, movie just reminded me of all the things I hate about Hollywood, even though I like this movie, and I think people should see it. Maybe not necessarily in theaters, because you won't get anything out of seeing it in theaters. It's just a bunch of fucking noise and Xbox cutscenes, <laughs> but like... But like... I uh, wasn't feeling that way. I mean, again, like, I don't think... I know, but, but what about now? Do you, do you think... But right now, looking, like... I mean, so my idea is it's a smaller scale thing, and it's just about his character arc of going from being this dipshit self-righteous major to being like an actual virtuous person who wants to sort of like yeah wouldn't that be a more interesting story i think it's there i mean it's not at the forefront necessarily and i it's one of those things too where i understand like oh yeah it kind of gets bogged down in expository dialogue and stuff but that's also like the character trying to figure himself out in the world and like trying to like understand how he can defeat this alien being you know i mean like it's 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 definitely like you know spoon feeding dialogue to the audience so like oh we understand what's going on but he's trying to understand what's going on and that's always been like my argument for inception like the reason why leonardo caprio is you know telling us and the characters is because they're trying to solve their dilemma too i it's a fictional premise though it's not a documentary it's like well that's what happened so that's how we have to depict it they could do whatever they want primer Primer doesn't hold the audience's hand at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah I, I mean, that's that's. that's I, I don't. That's I don't buy. The, I don't buy the whole idea of. It's like, well, you have to make this movie, and that's the only way it could be made. You don't have to make the movie. Sometimes it's just movies are a bad idea. But I'm not. not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, why does he have to save the world? Why do their action scenes have to be such garbage? Why do they have to invest so much time in this relationship that doesn't really matter? Like, it's just fucking backwards and it just and the the parts of it that were good reminded me of all the parts that could be better and that's why this movie fucking bummed me out yeah well i mean this is a it's a story that probably could have strived for more depth and you know uh, 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 something that we haven't seen i'm saying the opposite jim (laughs) okay (laughs) i want less depth because they can't do depth they're not good enough they can't be Mm -hmm. they can't make mature movies about human beings so they should just give up on that and they should make it more fun and you know have action scenes that are fun and for god's sakes if you have a premise in which someone knows exactly what's going to happen that's just a premise that is that's a setup for the greatest action scene ever where he does all these crazy things because he knows the exact timing of everything that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That never happens. In the, like, the closest thing that happens is that stupid, like, fight scene that sort of doesn't happen where he's just walking around. Like, there should have been yeah. – there could have been some massive set piece where he's, like, just doing crazy stuff. But for that – for them to do that, they'd have to pull the camera back 20 feet. They'd have to let you see what's going on and no one knows how to fucking do that in Hollywood apparently. And it's – it's just a, it just makes me so upset. <laughs> like that, that 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 does stand out to me the idea that, you know, they they show Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise talking about how to move through the thing and then they don't show that. They have all these other action sequences. Even in the movie that they did make, they could have put that scene in yeah. and it would be better. Yeah. So, on that but on I, to to that extent I agree with you. I think there's just a thing where it's just – I mean the way the Hollywood machine works is is oh, we have this 
script, which is an adaptation of this source material. So we already have to stick to the source material. Okay, well, this source material, it takes place in this kind of world. So we already have to have that kind of budget to create this kind of world. Okay, well, if we have that kind of budget, we have to justify that budget. So we have to put a movie star in it. Okay, well, if we're going to put a movie star in it, we have to, we're suddenly – the budget's that much bigger. So now we have to ap- appeal to this many more people. Whereas like this could have been – you know that's why I, that's why I don't that's why I think Hollywood can still do good comedies is because this is the end is a weird kind of movie that costs like thirty million to make <laughs> you know like that movie this is the end is a cheap movie so they could take more weird chances and it can end with fucking uh, Jay Baruchel and Seth Rogen's friendship cutting off Satan's dick <laughs> and it just being a fun yeah. silly weird thing and if this movie if they had such thing it's just like an seventy million dollar action movie. That what you know, that they could just do, and they and not have to make it hundreds and hundreds of million dollars. That they could just lower the scale and just do something quirky like that, and have the confidence that the word of mouth would sell it. And I and I again, I don't know anything about the fucking business. Maybe they're doing this because what I'm suggesting doesn't actually sell. Maybe the mm. American audiences don't give a shit. And I but this movie yeah. is not doing well to begin with. So, uh, but the I, funny thing I is. The funny thing is it occurs to me it, just off the top of my head that, that they did do this on a comedy. Uh, that's one of the things that's happening to Judd Apatow. Uh, funny people cost $90 million because they built all of the comedy clubs. <laughs> oh, wow. It was impossible for them to shoot in oh. actual comedy clubs and save $50 million. They had to build every single one of them. Oh, man. Well, I mean, I don't know about <laughs> J- Judd Apatow. It, that, that was a movie that was like three hours long and had Adam Sandler. It's, it's different than the s- sort of more nimble comedies I'm talking about. And I haven't seen mm. 21 Jump Street, but I've heard only great things and I want to see it. But well, I think uh, you make a good point. I mean, uh, there's probably more room to be daring and push the envelope with comedies. And, you know, even something like Neighbors had outrageous set pieces and... I just saw the trailer for the Dumb and Dumber sequel, and I'm like, well, you know, of course, there's, you know, there's going to be fingering it of an elderly lady. I mean, that's just like I think of early Fairly Brothers movies, and even stuff in Kingpin. When I saw that in the theater, I was actually really shocked. I mean, but nowadays it probably seems like, oh, that's nothing. That's you know, that's crazy outlandish comedy. The thing but is, that- dumb. The, <laughs> we're going to talk about the Dumb and Dumber two trailer. Dumb and Dumber wasn't one of those <laughs> movies. That's what no. that's what surprised me so much about that trailer was it's not like recapturing the feeling of watching Dumb and Dumber. You watch Dumb and Dumber, most of the jokes are just like malapropisms and someone misunderstanding what someone else says and saying a dumb reply like where are you going? Aspen, California. Beautiful. There's no fucking scene yeah, where yeah. Well, well. To be fair, this is a this is a two minute trailer. It's gonna be you know. I, my friend he saw a test screening and he said the movie was like two hours, but they'll probably cut it down. Sure. But I mean, it feels like those are the kind of jokes that you don't you don't really put in a trailer. So uh, you put the big, uh, you know, grandma finger. Sure. Jokes yeah. In the I mean, trailer. You know, we're talking about it. We're talking about <laughs> deriving the tone of the whole movie from the trailer, but. So, but anyway, yes, but, back, yeah. but back to uh, Edge of Tomorrow. It just it's it, it to me is just like so. Recently, I saw Midnight Run. Jim, you sent me Midnight Run. I watched it. It's fucking great. Um, Thank you. And it's completely <laughs> it's completely. Oh, these guys are on a road trip, and one guy doesn't like the other guy, and oh boy, it could have gone total their, sitcom. You well, know? it could have been any. It could have. There's any number of movies that are just that exact premise, and some of them are planes, trains, and automobiles, and Midnight Run, and some of them are garbage, but. The thing about Midnight Run is it was an action movie 
where it just it it was just a smaller scale. It's not it's not we got to get we got to get him back to L.A. because he has the computer chip that will stop the bomb from going off. It's you know it's it's just like I want my money, so I better get my money and. And the action scenes aren't the the greatest things ever. There's nothing in then Midnight Run that's like the Raid or or the Matrix or anything that's just like where the action blows your mind. But the cameras pulled back and they're all character driven and yeah, character driven. That's exactly that the why that movie works so effectively. Yeah, and the, none of the none of the scenes in none of the action scenes in Edge of Tomorrow are character driven. They're just just uh, Tom Cruise holding out his arms at a certain length, pretending to hold a rifle. So. The animators can come in and who framed Roger Rabbit it. Like, that's all any of those scenes look like to me. And it's just, it's amazing to me that that's just what it is now. That's just like, no, oh, that's like the fact that, because I mean, again, I don't go to the theaters that often. I, don't, I can't afford to go to the theaters that often. And I rarely, when I do go to the theaters, I rarely see a big Hollywood blockbuster action movie. Um, so, like, this is. You know, my re- my response to this is me having not seen one of these movies in theaters in a while, and mm. it's a. I expect, it, I it's expect just, I'm the only one who's seen uh, the Amazing Spider-Man two. Uh, I'm not, uh, yeah. I'm, but I, I'm the only one. <laughs> I mean, because there's there's I mean that that movie is indicative of the same thing. Uh, the movie opens with this elaborate CG uh, pan out from gears that turns into a watch on a hand for no reason. <laughs> For no yeah. reason, and the opening action sequence—that's the stuff. Um, that, oh man, that stuff bothers me the most. Like there's a like in Pacific Rim, <laughs> where in that they're that giant. Like it could it could have been in just like a hangar sized hangar, but it has to be the largest hangar in the world so the camera can <laughs> zoom around like all fake CG. And on the on the wall, there's a clock. There's just a clock that's like countdown to the next kaiju attack, and that clock is CGI, and it's just a physical object in the world. And it's a fucking clock. It's not the. It's not like tons of gears and some elaborate twisting mechanisms. It's just a clock where numbers tick down, and it's CGI. Yeah, I mean, I will. I'll agree. I don't have like, you know, like in terms of stakes and emotional investment. I didn't have that with Edge of Tomorrow, um, and I don't want to give anything away. And we can't do like a whole spoiler discussion. But uh, the ending didn't make much sense to me. And I, I've heard that from other people, and I just kind of went, oh, I didn't want to leave on that See, note. that's the craziest thing to me, is that, like, that's the takeaway from this movie, mm. is, like, that the ending, because it's, it's a fucking weird thing that the people only understand because they're going through it again and again. So they're sort of hobbing together their understanding of these creatures. So yeah. there is no actual definitive way the time travel works. There, when all those scenes where they're explaining who the creatures are and what their theories are, those are just theories, and they're like, "All right, well, this is, seems to be what it is like, and this has what happened to me, so this is probably what will happen to you." So maybe once all the creatures die, things go back a certain amount of time. Like to me, that's perfectly plausible. Okay. It, it doesn't mean anything. Like it's not like a great ending. It's not like oh well, it had to be that way. But it seems like a silly thing to complain about. Anyway, like, what, 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 what I was trying to say before was just like it's it's funny. It just amazed me that the talking point of this movie wasn't that it was an action movie where none of the action scenes were worth a damn. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's just it's. I think it's because we're used to that in a lot of summer movies, too. right? I mean, well, that's 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 that was what surprised me because I'm not used to that because I don't see these movies in theaters, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just too far. I'm just forgiving about that stuff sometimes, and I I, I acknowledge that. Where you know, and again, like I can see, I can see your point, and 
I was surprised uh, going into like the X-Men movie, again, another movie about time travel, which is why I saw it, where, yeah, the action sequences were, like, there was more emotional weight to them because I actually cared about the, the characters on screen, but also that's because you have a history with other movies, too. Like, you know why the characters act the way they act, and you just have a longer, you have, you know, more investment in them and i think but is it like filmed the, the same way too or are there oh actual no beats? no 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 there's no, actual there's, beats it, in the action movie okay so is yes it, so is it just uh, edge of tomorrow or is it or was x-man a an, an, a a great example of really good i thought it was Hollywood? a great example i thought it was i i was yeah. again i was you know i walked in not expecting too much because I'm, i don't have like I'm not Mr. Comic Book Movie Guy, obviously, and you know I I, I haven't even caught up with the the um, the the Wolverine prequel that everybody seems to really like, and I just kind of went, well, it's about time travel. I have a couple hours to kill. Why not? And I was pleasantly surprised, and even impressed by a couple of the action sequences because, in a way, I understand what you're saying in that I have almost become immune and like forgiving and just kind of going, okay, well. That's kind of the norm lately for how to shoot an action scene. It's, I'm not a, necessarily a fan of it, but I guess it's that's you know something that I don't mind as long as everything else kind of works for me. I think I think actually the ending of or the the third act stuff in X Men will infuriate Patrick oh, for yeah. this reason. For this reason, I mean, like, like uh, it's got a really great sequence near the middle with the character Quicksilver, which, yes. which does not seem like a, a sequence that that cost a lot. Like, it's 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 got special effects, but it seems like pretty reasonable. And at the end of the movie, I mean, some of this is in the trailers. So I'm not going to give anything away, but at, at the end of the movie, uh, uh, um, Magneto lifts a, a, a baseball stadium. Drops it over people, uh, over uh, an area to enclose them in so they can have a scene where they talk to each other. Like, there's this <laughs> elaborate CG lifting of an entire baseball stadium just so they can have a conversation. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. That I can understand, like, being critical of that. <laughs> but again, maybe it's like, oh, time travel, everything else, if, if, it's, if everything else sucks, that's okay, because it's time travel. What is it about time travel that appeals to you so much, Jim? That's a good question. I need to ask my therapist about that. <laughs> I mean, it could it, it could all just go back to, you know, the fact that Back to the Future was the movie that made me fall in love with movies. Now there's like an imprint saying like, oh, time travel, go to it and like it. But I mean, I've I, I even gone on record and been like, I've seen Clock Stoppers, you know, just because it had that uh, time travel plot. And I, I wasn't in love with the movie at all. I thought it was pretty bad. Um, but you know, every now and then something like a time crimes will come out and like as some of my favorite, some of my favorite episodes of TV shows involve time travel. Like I think, um, one of the best examples of the time loop storyline is in, uh, cause and effect, uh, the Star Trek, the next generation episode where there are some major stakes and you know, the, the episode opens with the star prize or with the enterprise blowing up and they have to figure out how to make, not make that happen by reliving the same uh, moments over and over again. Uh, and I, I mean, I wish there was like a lot more gravitas and a lot more panache to the way uh, Doug Lyman directs action scenes, because even when I saw The Born Identity, I thought, yeah, he, I, his action scenes are kind of lazy to me. 
Um, and they just, just don't like. I don't feel a lot of tension throughout them. Um, at least, at least the born identity has the benefit of practical effects. So you know that's oh yeah, mini yeah. going down this well of stairs, and that's exciting. At least, yeah, it just doesn't have that immediacy or visceralness that Paul Greengrass can bring to an action scene. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those movies, so I couldn't couldn't speak to it. You should sometime. Yeah, I probably will sometime. I watched all the Hitcher movies, so <laughs> wow! Because because you wanted to, yeah, because you wanted to see what I would think of the Hitcher. Yeah, I'm I'm sl- slowly getting around to starting up my road movies column, and it does. I like. I just I'm just just for the heck of it. I'm adding an offshoot of like car exploitation movies, and because I just love those. I, I mean. I've gone on record like talking about how much I love a movie like Breakdown, which isn't like anything spectacular, but it involves like a road trip and people being stalked and crazy shit happening. And there's something about that storyline that I've always loved. Um, and I hadn't seen The Hitcher in like 10 or 15 years, so I rewatched it when I was visiting my mom. Um, <laughs> it's like I always try to find something. Oh, my mom's going to go do some crazy stuff in the garage. What can I watch that would absolutely turn her away? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But every now and then, like, I sort of gravitate towards, like, an older movie that I haven't seen in years. And for some reason, I think it's just because it starred Jennifer Jason Lee. it was on her DVR. And I was like, what the hell? I'll watch The Hitcher. And uh, I, I still love it. I, I, I mean, it's not a great movie, and so many implausible, ridiculous things happen, especially later on. Um, but I like, I like viewing Rutger Hauer's character as this spirit rather than an actual human being, just, like, kind of going around just fucking with this guy in a nihilistic way. Yeah. That's definitely the best part of the movie is just, yeah, how he just feels like a weird force of evil, and mm-hmm. it's just totally inexplicable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I understand, like, your argument, again, with it getting bogged down, uh, by like po- you know policeman interference and you know just like deciding to spend some time in that realm where you know like and I I, I definitely don't understand why Jennifer Jason Lee is so like oh he didn't do it he, he seems like a great guy because he doesn't <laughs> for know, the for the listeners you're referencing my letterboxed review that's true yeah yeah um, whereas yeah no because it's just well it's just the first thirty minutes are amazing because they're just so inexplicable. It's like, why is this right. happening? How is this happening? Where is he even? What the fuck is this weird giant garage? Like, what is going on? How did this French fry get in? Or how did this finger get in the French fry? Exactly. <laughs> like, there's no explanation for any of it. And then suddenly it becomes bumbling cops movie. And it's 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 not the worst thing ever, but it's certainly way less interesting. And being on the run from this crazy uh, sort of abstract force of, e- of evil is way more interesting than, like, cops than being on the run from the cops and having car chases and stuff like that um, and giant car stunts. And like, I, I think the, I think it's it works best when it's sort of at full surreal, but uh, it's, it's certainly way better than uh, the sequel, the directed video sequel with Jake Busey. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but it's, it's, I think it would have been interesting though, if they made C Thomas Howell, you know, a, a murderer in the second movie, I think that would have been, cause it just, it seemed like it was hinting at like, you know, Clearly, he was going m- more crazy as the movie went on, and like he sort of became very detached by the end. That would have been nice to have a sequel where it's focused on how C. Thomas Howell, you know, as a result of what he went through, sort of became 
you know, crazier than ever before. And I, I wish they would have taken that approach instead of hiring Jake Busey. Well, no, I, no, I, I would I would appreciate the version of the movie you're pitching if Jake Busey was the kind, unassuming, nice guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, Jim, I, I have good news for you. Mm. Um, the beginning of The Hitcher Two: colon, I've been waiting. Uh, I've been waiting. Exactly. Um, has C. Thomas Howell as a cop on the edge. Oh. He's a cop on the edge, and he's doing this crazy, <laughs> weird grit voice. He's like the worst. It's amazing how bad an actor he is in, in the, the second one, considering how good he is in the first one. Yeah, I'm surprised, too. I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't seen a whole lot of movies he was in, even being a child of the 80s, but... Uh, I, I, I'm rewatching it now. It's like, you know, he's not so bad in the first one at all. So in the second one, he's a cop on the edge, and, and he, he killed a suspect because that dirtbag kidnapped a child. And, and he's like, I just lost my job. And, and, his, and, his wife, and his wife is like, honey, let's take a road trip. Let's take a vacation. It's like, I think what we need to do is go to the place where all this originally happened to you. Or something. Oh, God. For some reason, they go to the exact place where this happened, and Jake Busey is there. Um, and he's like, no, we can't pick him up. Let's go. And his wife's like, come on, honey. Don't be an asshole. Let's pick him up. It's a dust. It's so dusty out. <laughs> and his, his wife is super irritating, played by Carrie Wurr. And, um, yeah. And then, but, uh, see Thomas Howell, he's on the edge. And then he, he gets killed off and it turns out that his wife is the main character. So she flies a plane into a truck. And that's the best scene in the movie. She flies a plane into uh, a big uh, 18-wheeler. Oh. Are you all right, Jim? That's disappointing. That's just disappointing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I am so upset. Yeah. I just had to step away for, from the mic for a second. Like, I pushed back in my seat and went, oh, man. Yeah. Uh, and, then, just and, then in the, and then in the remake, Sean Bean is in it. And Sean Bean... Isn't bad, and none of nothing about the remake is particularly bad. It's just not surreal at all because it's a Platinum Dunes movie, and they have to make thing, things oh. as gritty and realistic as possible. Oh, and it's I'm just, uh, these horror remakes lately just bug the shit out of me. I don't like any of them. I don't think you don't like any of them. No, like everybody was going crazy about the Evil Dead remake. I'm like, fuck you. It sucked. <laughs> Like that was just I, the, when I walked out of it, I was like, "What? What right. makes that so distinctive?" All right. Other I than okay, other than the obvious, uh, the obvious, the blob, the thing, uh, well, invasion yeah. of the body snatchers and stuff. Let's all go around. Let's talk about our favorite horror remakes that people generally think are bad, or mm. like movies, things that remakes that you think are pretty good, even if a lot of people aren't fans of them. How to think? All right. So for me. Obviously, Black Christmas remake. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. Black Christmas remake is great, and no one seems to get it. Um, what about you, Tyler? Uh, I'm thinking I can't come up with any horror remakes off the top of my head. What about... Ooh, uh, ooh, 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 ooh. I got one. Mr. Carter. <laughs> Last House on the Left. There you go. Good. Last oh, yeah, House. That, one was, that one was all right. Yeah. I, I, think that's, I think it's better than the original. I agree, Jim. Um, Hills Have Eyes is all right. Oh yeah, yeah. I really like the Hills Have Eyes. Uh, I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, it's okay. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is pretty effective for the first part of it. Um, I'm lo- now, now, now I'm looking at a list and it has Cape Fear on it. 
Oh, that's oh. right. Cape Fear. A lot of people don't like Cape Fear. I love Cape I've, Fear. I've come around to it. I, I do like it now. I was kind of indifferent to it when it came out, surprisingly. But um, I, I like the Dawn of the Dead remake. Oh, and uh, uh, well, I guess I guess never mind. Uh, that would have been one of the obvious ones. The Thing and The Fly are technically remakes. Yeah, and Dawn, and Dawn of the Dead is one that people like a lot. I hate that one, but... Yeah, I don't, li- I don't like the Dawn of the Dead remake very much. Oh. I, I found it not a fan of the fast zombies. Well, no, the, no. well the, first, the first ten minutes are really good, <laughs> and then the rest of the movie is not nearly as good. I could, I could mm. give a shit about the fast zombies. I, I don't like the bad actors and the characters I don't care about. There's too many of them. And, and uh, again, yeah, the first ten minutes are really good. That, uh, Zack Snyder had a really good idea for sort of how that all could be shot and that sort of depiction of the society breaking down and stuff. But then all the stuff in the mall, it doesn't have the satire, and it doesn't have good character beats. And if you think about it, like, the original Dawn of the Dead gets really fucking boring <laughs> in the middle. and it that's a, And that's good, and that's a good movie, but there's still parts of it where you're just like, this is really, this is much longer than I think it needs to be. And it's not... You see, Patrick, sometimes a horror movie can be boring temporarily, and that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, it's what? not... Go ahead it's and define. Re- go ahead, define temporarily <laughs> for me again, because I, I don't think House of the Devil fits. Okay, I only. I don't, I don't, I'm only bored for like maybe ten, fifteen minutes, and I think you're bored much longer. Whole thing. Whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, even, even- <laughs> one movie. One movie that's on this list that is not technically good, but it is certainly interesting is the Psycho remake. Oh, there we go. Uh, funny, funny games remake, if that counts. Uh, oh yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think of others. I liked Let Me In. A lot, a lot of people are kind of cold on that, but I actually really liked Let Me In. I, I liked it. I, I wish that there was less cribbing of actual shots and stuff, like from the original. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it definitely plagiarizes here and there. I mean, there's, I mean, but there's a moment like involving a car accident that's just like fucking brilliant like i just love that that <laughs> well mainly uh, the the difference between the two that i i latched onto that i really liked was the original is really sort of sad and it's about loneliness and then the the, the remake seems more uh rebellious like fuck everybody else kind oh, of oh yeah that's the way the the tone of their relationship like the punk rock cover song <laughs> <laughs> No, I just, there's, just, there's a few. I'm, I, I think, I don't know, Platinum Dunes, their stuff just does nothing for me. I don't like the Friday 13th or Texas Chainsaw oh, Massacre, Night, like Nightmare on Elm Street. I do like the Friday the 13th remake. Oh, okay. You, you can like, like it, but... <laughs> you know what the remake I has? I never, you know what the remake hmm. has? Likeable uh, teen characters. Yeah, I know still, one we... D- d- yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It still does way too much with the backstory, and it, like it does this stupid thing that yeah. you never have to do, where it's like trying to spell out mythology and just be, like, oh, I'm here, and you know the plot should just be these people don't know Jason's there, and then they know Jason's there, but it's too late. But I like that. I, I know, like the I, Friday Thirteenth remake. I think um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this one on the podcast, but uh, I know we differ on it, and that's uh, the Maniac remake. Well, I didn't finish it. I really liked it. I, th- I, mean, I, I to, to me, it was like, okay, Nicholas Winding Refn <laughs> remaking Maniac, pretty much, you know? To I me, just, just... I, the, the style of it. I mean, I know it was, like, total style over substance, but I just kind of love that style, and I didn't mind the gimmicky uh, point of view stuff, either. 
um, and the score was fantastic. Well, the uh, point of view I, stuff was the style. Yeah, I, 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 th- I mean, just cl- sort of cloaked in that '80s sensibility. I think. I mean, obviously, it's remaking a movie from the '80s. I think, but still, I, I thought. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I didn't ahead. I didn't finish that movie, so I can't really speak to it. But okay, the first twenty minutes or so, it felt like only the music was really '80s. Um. Maybe. There's a lot of parts where, like, they clearly had to use computers to keep the first person thing going. Like, where when he looks in reflections and stuff like that. And, yeah. Like, that's, you're a, right. that's not an 80s sort of a thing. That's computers. And also, I found, like, I thought I would find, really find that interesting. Um, I've, I don't know if I've seen any other movie that's entirely in first person. I guess other than Enter the Void. But that movie is so not a narrative, <laughs> like, a typical narrative that it, it just. That the fact that it's in first person, you forget it halfway through, hmm. um, because eventually he dies and his soul becomes sort of this omniscient third person camera. But um, uh, the 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 thing about the first person that I really hated, and I eventually had to turn off the movie, was it just ended up looking like found footage. <laughs> like it ended up looking like absolutely without style because. When you, because all found footage movies are essentially first person, because no one acts as if they actually are holding a camera. They all just are just like, oh, you're looking through this person's eyes, and their eyes are always up to this camera. Um, yeah, and that's honestly like the movie just felt completely without style. There were no, you know, because you couldn't set up anything. You couldn't, you couldn't set up any good shots. You couldn't set up any tense moments or anything because it was all through his eyes and therefore the camera was just constantly moving and, and bobbing and going up and down and like it was it just felt like found footage to me hmm. and I thought that and that combined with the fact that Maniac's plot is the most overdone horror movie plot ever which is just I'm done with the straight serial killer narrative like oh let's get inside the mind of a serial killer you know what they're not actually that interesting they're just like drug addicts except they they like murder instead of heroin um pretty much and they got trauma from their childhood that they're you know uh, acting out more or less and <laughs> not dealing with in a healthy way right i'm just saying narratively it's not it's not necessarily a thrilling uh, a, a thrilling plot and yeah, and I just thought that style was really ugly because it was just it just felt like found footage to me. Mm. Have you, did you Here's see Did you see Maniac, Tyler? No, I actually haven't seen either Maniac. Oh. First, the first one is also a bad movie, but it's <laughs> but it's a bad movie. Some really spectacular kills. Some people like to pretend yeah. that it's like has a really good performance at the center and it's like a real movie, but it isn't. It's a it's a it's an unpleasant bad movie that has some really really great moments. Um, what yeah, were there were a lot of those type. Those are, there were a lot of those types of horror movies coming out at that time. I'm sure, you just rent them to, for the kills, and <laughs> that was it. Sure, what which is kind of sad. You? I was going to ask: Can you like a movie with nothing but unlikable characters? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, unlikable is a subjective term. That's true. But That's if true. you if you are asking me if I can like a movie with nothing but despicable characters, definitely. I love Squid in the Whale. Okay. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's true. That's true. I, mean, I, I love Alexander Payne movies. I love Citizen Ruth. Where okay, yeah. I mean, that's something I was thinking about when I was watching. I won't do what I normally do. I saw the Rules of Attraction. Okay, and that has a you know a tie with Roger Avery at the mm-hmm. helm for that. 
Uh, I, it was tough because like I wanted to spend more time watching some spaghetti westerns and kung fun mo- kung fu movies. <laughs> kung fun, that's a good term. Um, but I just I, I decided because uh, my roommate had a copy of it, and uh, I was like, you know, I don't I haven't seen this in like over a decade, and I was curious to see how I'd feel about it now. And it, you know, it feels like this crazy concoction of homage and like this requiem for a dream stylistic indulgence. And I guess it's it fits like the hedonistic thrills that the kind of movie provides. I mean, obviously it's done in a very dark comedic way, um, but it, it definitely like it's a movie that I is not pleasant either. Like, I mean, I'm, I guess using hedonistic is kind of contradictory then, but <laughs> I um I mean the, the the characters themselves are indulging in those in that hedonism, so. It's a it's a movie I feel conflicted about, because um, it, it it mirrors what Brett Easton Ellis is kind of known for, where it's like you know he focuses on these characters so lost in their lack of humanity and selfishness, and they just wind up worse and worse and worse, and they have no control over that practically. Um, and he also has a very interesting podcast. Side note, I I, th- I really like Brett Easton Ellis. Um, as just a regular sort of uh, interviewer, um, he is definitely indulgent sometimes, and I really, really like Roger Avery being very playful stylistically. Like, there's that sequence involving one character going to Europe, and like apparently they shot it like for like I don't know, like thirty days, and they just cut it together in like this one minute, one minute and thirty second sequence that I love the rhythm of that editing so much. And even though it's like, what does that serve really? Other than just like being, you know, stylistically cool and stuff. I mean, I understand like we're just experiencing a bunch of selfish assholes for 90 minutes. And for me, like, I don't know what the thesis of the film is other than just like, okay, here's a bunch of self-indulgent characters being self-indulgent. And, you know, they're pursuing all these desires that probably were only meant to be fantasies to begin with. And, it's just a self-destructive movie, essentially. Like, there's no sort of, uh, oh, everything, you know, I've learned my lesson. And I'm not saying that has to happen, but it doesn't make for a very pleasant experience other than, like, moments where you kind of go, oh, wow, there's, you know, Fred Savage shooting heroin. And, you know, I mean, like, there are those things, like, I watch it and I, I'm more or less, like, hyper aware of this being kind of indulgent, but yet I still find it interesting and entertaining and i think that's just because like okay roger avery's just going to use split screens for this sequence or he's going to you know have the entire film play backwards for like a minute or so um and you know the voiceover narration changes from character to character um but i also don't know specifically like what is this movie trying to say in the end other than here's a bunch of crazy people let's watch them do crazy shit um so i mean that's kind of like my overall feeling about it to where I don't necessarily find it, um, you know, a waste of time, but I also don't get like attached to this character, to these characters or the world that's portrayed at the same time. I think it's just a cool movie from a directorial standpoint. I just like some of his indulgences, I think, but does it serve like a, a greater context or does it serve necessarily like, um, something that was intended from Brett Easton Ellis, who de- definitely gets preachy in his writing, I would say. Um, but this doesn't 
hold up in the same way that I think something like American Psycho does. And I think they're very interesting movies just on their own. And they're actual, you know, I keep reading everywhere, too, that, like, both these movies are better than the books, too, which is something that rarely happens. But, I mean, Roger Avery... Do you think I, they're better than the books? Um, I never finished American Psycho. And I, I would say that, like, it's, this is a very faithful adaptation of, rule, of the book, Rules of Attraction. Um, to where I like, I don't think other than like all the crazy things I mentioned in terms of just being stylish, it doesn't really distinct, distinguish itself much or, or like take a lot of, uh, you know, uh, cha- it doesn't have a lot of changes from the story. Um, but I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting just because like, um, I was really, um, cold on Roger Avery's Killing Zoe when that came out because, we're going to be talking about Tarantino in a bit. And so many people, like there's at least like, you know, 20 movies that came out after Pulp Fiction that just did the exact same thing without bringing anything new to the table or creating memorable characters. And I think Roger Avery at least tries a lot harder with something like Rules of Attraction because there's a lot to go off of from the book. And that's something I give him credit towards. But it's a movie that I remember like, I saw this movie called Spun, which was just about crack addicts, and I was like, this is the most unpleasant, uninteresting, unengaging movie I've ever seen, and why would I want to watch it? Because, you know, that was a huge, you know, argument back then, too. It's like, why do I want to spend time with these hitmen, and why do I want, you know, like, what is fun and interesting about that when it's just nothing but, like, uh, you know, indulgence and kind of ridiculousness over the topness and all this stuff, and it does you know, does come across as an exploitation movie in some regards. Well, I I mean, Pulp Fiction isn't just nothing but that. There's a lot of mellowness in Pulp Fiction. There's the, yeah, exactly. The the volume varies. The, the, the speed of the movie, the tone of the movie varies. Is that true of rules of attraction? It's mostly on fast forward (laughs) for a lot of it. Like I think, so is, is is rules of attraction a comedy? I would say so. Okay. Um, So it's got got a, it's got a pulse. It's got an energy, and I really like the rhythm of the movie, and you know, it's it's got editing techniques that would you know we would go on to see in, in Requiem for a Dream. I can't remember which came first, actually. Requiem, Requiem for, for a Dream, dream was ninety nine. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, like sometimes that is sort of like a, a again like a really fast paced music video cut approach, and um, you know, sometimes that really clicks with me. Sometimes I find it really annoying and bothersome. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about 1994, and that was the year I saw Natural Born Killers. And stylistically, I find that movie to be really interesting, but don't connect necessarily with what Oliver Stone is trying to say anymore. Um, like, sometimes, like, that overindulgent style works. And I think it works for Rules of Attraction, but again, I don't get caught up in, like, caring as much as I'd like, because that's kind of what drives me to that's what drives me to good stories and you know loving movies is actually like having a real strong attachment to what's taking place and what the characters go through and if they you know uh evolve in some way or not i think you know just good characterization is essential for me to loving a movie and it's not necessarily here other than just like oh there's you know they're in college they're really impulsive and outlandish and they're completely hedonistic and let's watch them fuck up their lives that's essentially what that movie is. Um, 
So, but he just doesn't have. He doesn't let his characters breathe the way Tarantino does. He just sort of presents them, lets them do crazy shit, and you'll either find that interesting or you won't. Are you a fan of American Psycho and Rules of Attraction? Tyler? I'm a, f- I'm a fan of America, American Psycho. I mm. have not seen Rules of Attraction like you in like 10 years, and I yeah. remember not liking it very much. Yeah, I mean, again, like... I mean, I think, I think your initial question just sort of answers itself, and it's not necessarily uh, the characters that have to be... Um, it's not like the the characterization of the characters has to say something, but something has to say something. The director has to be making a point. They could all yeah. be horribly unlikable, but as long as the director's saying something about that, then it'll be interesting. If you if you if, if you're it's not if, clear, that's yeah, the thing to me too. It's not clear. Yeah, but I mean, if you get to the end of the movie and you're still asking the question, "Why am I watching these characters?" Then that's a failing of somebody, the the filmmakers, to answer that for you. Yeah. Which, well, no, that's definitely. A I mean, point. if it's a comedy, sometimes comedies are just there are no lessons, and there are no likable characters, and there's no morals, and there's no broad point to be made. It's just it's funny, and I don't know if this is that. I haven't seen Rules of Attraction, but I it's mean, funny and sad. There are, <laughs> there are episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where it's like every character's an unlikable asshole, and no one learns any lessons, and it's not like a broad point is being made. It's just funny, and. You know, so I, I, I think the, like, the initial question for me is likable is again, it's weird. Like are, when you say a character is likable, do you mean the audience liked them? And when you say that, do you mean the audience likes watching them or do you mean the audience would like someone like them? Or do you mean that the I characters just in the movie like so like do you want the characters in the movie like them? Because you definitely don't need someone to root for because you don't because there are so many movies with anti-heroes and you're just following horrible people and you're not rooting for them but you're still captivated by what they're doing and you're finding yeah. it fascinating and and you know unlikable characters is a misnomer and I think that's maybe the it's often the wrong way to phrase conversations and when people are I think like Tyler said probably t- talking about something else some other failing of the mm-hmm. filmmakers like I like uh go bring back Squid and the Whale I all those characters are quote unquote unlikable and that they're all kind of despicable, horrible people. But I find them all very relatable. I I relate to all of their failings. I relate to all of their flaws. And, you know, maybe someone who uh is less self aware than me, or maybe someone who just has more self esteem than me, doesn't relate to despicable characters in the way that I can or do. But like to me that's what Squid in the Whale is great is cause is the combination of the characters being so unlikable and so relatable. Um, yeah, I just wonder why, like in something like Train Spotting, it works. Even if you're, you know, seeing nothing but excess, maybe it's just like, oh well, Train Spotting, I can empathize. Yeah, see, with Train the Spotting, I didn't find that interesting because I had, I there's no real plot, there was, there's no real stakes because it was, it just felt like, it just kind of felt tedious in the way that most stories about drugs are tedious. Uh, yeah, I think drug addicts are captivating. You know, drug addicts can be very captivating people. But I don't think inherently just the things that the average drug addict does is inherently a good story it's, for a movie. It's, it involves a lot of repetition. Because, exactly. You know, and that's that's the nature of addiction more or less. But I think like nihilistic excessiveness, whether it's portrayed in something like Rules of Attraction or, or Spun, at least with Rules of Attraction, like there's moments where I go, wow, that's De Palma-like. Or, you know, like there's just really cool things he's doing visually 
that I can at least gravitate towards. And even if I'm like not necessarily connecting with all the characters, there's things that I find interesting in entertainment. Uh, you know, and I think Roger Avery could have gone on to do more interesting work um, on his own. But I, I think like something is lost in a movie like this, despite finding a lot of redeeming qualities, including very funny moments and interesting cameos. When you say and, when you say lost, what do you mean? Um, I mean, I, I I think it's more or less like I don't know if he's just trying to be so faithful to the book that there's no room for. Um, like uh, just a larger story or something, a thematic stance, like something to say other than just like viewing the characters in their natural habitat. And I feel like, you know, for me, I want there to be a story, a character, something other than just like, this is a cool way to present this. And I feel like that gets lost. Just the characterization the what i would prefer from how a story be told it's like let's just watch nothing but hedonism and nihilism and you know i mean that is questionable entertainment for some people and i can understand that um but again like something like requiem for a dream i was talking in class about like in my substance abuse class i would show requiem for a dream to like an 18 year old because like it'd be like this will make you never want to do heroin you know and there's there's so a for you requiem for a dream that. is sort of like just red asphalt <laughs> <laughs> like it's just a scare movie <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> but i mean like god i mean aronofsky's a, a hell of a filmmaker in his own right um and he and avery is just not up to that standard i guess i mean he's just kind of doing his own thing and just going off the novel and not really bringing anything new to the table. But I still, like, parts of me wants to recommend it just because of, again, like, some cool flourishes that I, I like seeing in movies. And even if they're considered to be indulgent, I still like them. And that's something we argued about in the Palma episode. Like, I can like Femme Fatale as, like, this sort of visual masturbation. <laughs> you know, like, and not literally. I just mean, like, just cool ways to use the split screen or really long fun tracking shots and but it, that's it, it just lo- get, like that sort of thing it gets super exhausting though and it just and it and it becomes super unpleasant for me yeah <laughs> is, I, I guess it is yeah it's, I mean, it's just unpleasant i do find it interesting that you uh were down on train spotting but you're positive on requiem for a dream because i feel like requiem for a dream is more about uh the experience of drugs than train spotting is i think train spotting is probably more about uh what what does this person the ewan mcgregor character do when he he gets away from that who are who are you talking to i'm talking to you i think you well i think you were, i'm you not were, i'm not i don't like requiem for a dream Oh, you don't. Oh, I loved Requiem for a Dream when I was eighteen, and I was like, "Wow, look at all those cool shots!" But it's I find it tedious. <laughs> it's it's very tedious, and it's and it's a very like let's tell the story of four addicts, and it's like, oh, what happens? Is it is it show sort of show all the different <laughs> ways that addicts can you know end up and all the different things that can happen? It's like, nope, they all reach the worst possible conclusion. Really? Every single one? Oh, yeah. You know, if you do diet pills, you'll end up in a mental institution getting electroshock therapy. Really? Is that what you... Is that... Is that... Is it... Oh, you don't... I mean, just, just don't do don't do cocaine, because you'll end up surrounded super, by businessmen, um, you know, getting... You know, doing horrific sex acts uh, for money. Um, like, it, it's... That, that yeah, whole that, movie is such a... The worst possible outcome on every single instance. It's 
it's so just ridiculous that it's hard to take seriously. So no, I don't like Requiem for a Dream. And honestly, I haven't seen Train Spot. I only saw Train Spotting once, and I didn't like it very much. So therefore, I don't recall much about it. Wow. I mean, even if that that whole like final twenty minutes is grossly exaggerations of what happens. I mean, uh, it's it still plays like a horror movie in my mind. No, it does. That's, I mean, that's because- what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. But it tries to be. It, the thing about horror is horror goes into the fantastic, and horror creates these fantastic scenarios. And in right, and with Requiem for a Dream sticking with, it's not a, it's not some kind of sci-fi drug. It's not some kind of fantasy drug. It's heroin, and these are heroin addicts, and they exist in the real world. And here's what happens. It, it, it makes it sa- seem like it's trying to teach a moral about drug use, and that moral is very facile, hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, it's, there's a little contradiction in like having a scene where you know, Ellen Burstyn talks to her son about how she just wants to look good and fit into that red dress, and that's really like almost l- like an organic conversation that's told like very realistically, and that's v- vastly con- contrasted with the final 20 minutes. Like maybe you're right. Like there's an extreme imbalance between those two stories about addiction, like the the crazy surreal one that happens as a result, and uh, the really poignant and sort of realistic one I think happens early on in the movie. Like the stuff with Ellen Burstyn and and uh, Jared Leto is incredibly moving to me. Yeah, like, I think she's phenomenal in that movie too. Yeah, and then it doesn't. If it was just about those two characters, that would be one thing. But in being about four different characters, it's implicitly saying something about making a bigger statement about all addicts. It, mm. It's well, Hubert Hubert Selby Jr. He hates people and just wants to watch them suffer. Who, I, I don't know I've, who that I've, is. Read, he's the he's the writer of Requiem for a Dream okay. and uh, La- Last Exit to Brooklyn, and both of his books pissed me off. Because, like, nobody gets redemption, and everybody's going to fucking go to hell and die in, in pain, basically. That's, that's just his view of the world. Also, Requiem for a Dream is literally written in the, in the cadence of every character, so there's, like, no capitalization and no punctuation and just long, run-on sentences. And- yep. <laughs> you know what? You know what? You know what? You know what movie about drug addicts is actually really, really good? Um, and, and even though it, it does a lot of the same things that these typical movies that I don't like as much do is uh, Drugstore Cowboy. Oh, yeah. That's probably my favorite. Dr- right. Drugstore Cowboy is great. And that mm-hmm. and that isn't a movie in which, like, the drug use is incidental. It is just like these movies where the plot is, here's what addicts do and here's what an addict life is like. But the characters are just so great and the performances are so great. And, you know, even even at the end when he tries to get clean, it's still pretty good. Hmm. I think it's time, guys. The moment has arrived. What moment is that, talk. Jim? I, I think you, I think you know where I'm going. I with don't this. know where you're going with this, Jim. Oh, okay. I know when I'm ready. Yeah. He can feel it. Tyler's on the wavelength. What wavelength is that, Jim? We're gonna talk about House of the Devil. All right. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Top 50 reasons why Jim's an idiot. Number one, House of the Devil. Number two, House of the Devil sucks. Number three, House of the Devil is stupid. Number four, I hate Ty West. Number five, Ty West is stupid. <laughs> Number six, somewhere 
What else? <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it's a bore. You have to understand. It's an only a boring movie because it's about boring people. I mean, <laughs> Sophia Sophia Coppola. She that had, was not how I she said had, it. She had no choice in the matter. She had to make this movie. I mean, well, what else are you gonna do? You're gonna make an action movie about boring people? No, this is what boring people are like, and therefore it's a great film. No, that's not how I put it. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> This is turning into our greatest hits episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm very excited for uh, the director of this episode because he's one of the main reasons why I love movies. Do you know his name? Nope. Well, I'll tell you. And then you can jump in if you, you know, get the hint after I say the director of the episode is Quentin Taren. tapped into the zeitgeist quite like Pulp Fiction. I don't know that that's true. There's plenty of films that have tapped into okay. the zeitgeist. <laughs> like, throughout history, you know? Like, well, Gone with the Wind my must have tapped into some kind of zeitgeist. Uh, maybe maybe my lifetime. I, I, know, think, I think Wizard I, of Oz spoke a lot about the Depression. Um, hmm. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm, Jim. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> this was a very interesting year. Because, um, like, I, me and my best friend, we were, you know, making movies and stuff, and really bad ones at that. Uh, and we saw, like, three movies, I'd say, in the theater that kind of um, would go on to be, you know, debated and sort of, like, 
discussed at length whether you know a, you know sort of just talking about their significance more or less. And I saw Natural Born Killers, Clerks, and Pulp Fiction in the same year in the theater. And they both had a huge impact on me at the time in very different ways. And what's funny is that the more I rewatch Natural Born Killers and Clerks, the less I tend to like them. Whereas the opposite holds true for Pulp Fiction. And I think that's there's a reason for that. Uh, it's layered with incredible detail and, and nuance and these interesting idiosyncrasies that felt so fresh at the time, and they still do to me. I mean, even with all the imitations that came out after Pulp Fiction, just knowing, like, this was the first to sort of, uh, you know, break down a lot of barriers and sort of challenge the way we look at movies at the time. I mean, obviously, all the things that have influenced Tarantino, whether it be spaghetti westerns and blaxploitation and kung fu movies and on and on and on, there are elements abound in the majority of his movies that are, you know, either obvious or not. But Pulp Fiction felt like the most original thing to come along at that time. Um, you know, I'd never seen anything like it, especially the choice early on to make these fully dimensional hitmen seem kind of likable based on like just the fact they were having normal everyday conversations, the kind that I would have, you know, with anybody really. And, there's this like really interesting intimacy shared between these characters and the audience, and it also made me very aware of what a filmmaker does um, as a writer too. And it inspired me to read books, write screenplays, and I even got a job at a video store too <laughs> about a year later. And it has a very special place in my heart because it made movies feel like punk rock again. <laughs> you know, it was just everything that I wanted to experience in a movie is here. And it reminds me of why movies like this need to exist. They sort of transcend genre and become their own thing. And I can't tell you how much, like there's so many moments I can go on and on about, but there's a moment that I think you're going to elaborate on too, Patrick, that starts out as kind of an homage to Psycho, where Butch sees Marcellus walking across the street. And from that point on, um, up until when Butch goes back to the hotel, might be my favorite thing in Pulp Fiction. Like I just, if the 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 sort of intensity, the immediacy of how you know, like everything that's gone on comes, you know, crashing in literally, and there's just interesting things that I don't think uh, Tarantino does as much anymore in in the in that sequence because I think a lot of people sort of brush it aside and kind of go that's the weakest story of the three I actually really really love it and um I love everything about pulp fiction and we can certainly you know cite more specific examples of what makes it so great um and I'm just going to pass it on and let you guys do your thing too cuz obviously it's a masterpiece in my eyes Tyler um oh, the, for me the the thing that I that stands out the most to me about Pulp Fiction is just the whole the the character of Samuel L. Jackson and uh, at the end you know him giving his big speech it, it, I feel like that's that's Tarantino's thesis about the whole thing in the sense that this is a movie that opens with the definition of pulp and it's supposed to be big and flashy and over the top and it ends with this really intimate moment about yeah. in insight and character and um, it elevates 
everything that the movie is, and it, but but it's not it's not so it's not separated from it. That 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 fits in the the, the overall movie as much as anything. It's not this weird shift, and uh, I think that's sort of what he's trying to draw out of the whole concept of pulp fiction and pulp movies, and that that's that's where all his uh, interests align. That makes sense to me for sure. You got. I mean, I just. <laughs> and I think the main thing that stands out to me as well is um, we'll talk about Reservoir Dogs a little bit later. But I'm not a huge fan of Reservoir Dogs, and um, it, it the the amount to which he improves as a director, as a writer, from from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction is just astronomical. I, I it's hard to even fathom it that he didn't make something else in the middle and uh, for a stepping stone. Like, every single line in this movie is memorable. I, I really... Huh. Yeah, I really don't... I really didn't like this movie very much. Because <laughs> it was... I mean, I thought, like, Tommy Davison was really bad. I thought Sandra Bernhardt was really annoying. Um, I think it was... What is it? Dan Castellaneta was annoying. Like... It was just this weird kind of dumb comedy, and it seemed to be just like, I don't know, it, it just felt like a bunch of pointless scenes just parodying other movies and stuff. Um, yeah, I thought it was pretty bad. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not at all a fan of plump fiction. <laughs> Hello? Hi. <laughs> 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 hey Patrick, would you give a guy a foot massage? Yeah, I would. I have. Okay. I, okay. I have given a guy a foot massage. Yeah. Save that for a bonus episode. <laughs> um No, oh, yeah, obviously pulp fiction is great. Uh I almost Really? Yeah. I don't know what to say about it. What what what, what, what are you, you going to say about it? I think I mean, I think what makes it work is that it balances it grounds the surreal um, in very unexpected ways and it it has almost a magical realism to it but it's also so fucking LA like I've I've been to LA once and when I was there all the movies that take place in LA the only movie that actually felt like LA to me is Pulp Fiction Um, and Reservoir Dogs to a lesser extent if only because less of it takes place outside of that warehouse but like his movies feel Hmm. so fucking LA from just like the see the the shot where Butch is wandering around through the backyards and stuff and you just hear people in their living rooms and you hear like an ice cream truck in the background it's just this huge sprawling kind of suburb and you even hear a commercial for Jack Rabbit Slims in the background oh yeah I didn't hear that um I didn't notice that but like there's moments like that and like the moment where uh Pumpkin and Honey Bunny are holding up the diner and they run through the kitchen and and like you see them get the chefs and the chefs roll in the court like there are moments of it that are feel very gritty like reservoir dogs and it has that sort of groundedness to it so that when you look back on it you're not like oh that was that weird gangster fantasy thing i don't know why was that suitcase glowing why why did all those things happen that don't make sense why is that crazy restaurant where there's a giant like where most of the floor space is this giant stage that seems to not be used very much <laughs> like and everyone eats and they eat in cars and stuff like like there's all these parts of the, that movie that seem just crazy and fantastical 
and silly, and they're all so grounded in, and it's all just in a weird, unexpected ways, and um, I think that's probably its its key strength, and the thing that most people don't get is it's not just about the coolness, it's about the coolness, and it's about the the edginess to it. There, it's about the darkness to it. It's about the levity to it. It's about how three dimensional and real the relationship between Butch and and his girlfriend are, and it is and like the fucking moment where Butch is freaking out about the watch and he's wrecking the hotel room and he just stops and he like sort of counts to three in his head and he just just through like fucking gritted teeth he's like it's okay I should have made it more important to you I should have made it more clear to you why it was important to me I didn't I'm just like like that's that's a, that's such a fucking real relationship movie like relationship moment in the middle of this gangster crime movie. Where, like, oh, yeah, I freaked out, and I should have freaked out, and now I'm trying, while still emotional, to explain why I freaked out and apologize for it, because I love you, and you're my partner, and I need to, you know, like, like that kind of shit is just so real, and it so grounds the characters, and, you know, like, everyone can talk about all the monologues, and the digressive dialogue, and stuff like that, but the the re- the thing that separates all of those imitators from this movie is stuff like that, where... These are just real people. And Tarantino understands that real people doesn't mean hitmen are only their role in the movie, which is the force of violence that, you know, are scary and are coming to pick off a character. The hitman is a guy with a job. Um, yeah. And they fucking – and they, they and yes, when you're on the job, you uh, – you know, when you're on the job and you're not doing it yet, you're going to just shoot the shit about other stuff. But like when they're on the job, even just the – way they sort of grumble about not having shotguns like <laughs> like any, <laughs> if you've ever had a job where it's just like where just something always goes wrong and you just always commiserate with your coworkers, like oh yeah of course of course we ran out of that yeah no that's gonna make this day go real good <laughs> like like there's all these like little moments like that that ground it that to me are so fascinating and of course technically it's all over the place he's so playful he you know he you know the he don't be a square, and she draws a little square with her fingers, and all the different ways that the movie is doing this. It, I mean, it ha- it's grounded in the themes of sort of people in desperate situations and relying on each other, um, which is best. I really do think is best exemplified by Butch's choice to go back and save Marcellus Wallace, um, and which suddenly yeah there's that th- theme of redemption there and so, we're suddenly that nice. that uh, Christopher Walken monologue which was just uh you know which was just sort of humorous uh, out of context of that suddenly it becomes a lot more uh poignant mm-hmm. and and so yeah like it's it's the fact like all the things that people love to quote and all the things that get parodied and all that those aren't to me, those aren't necessarily the things that make this movie special. It's the way that... What was in the briefcase? It's the way that things I mean, are that's, tied that, down. That, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the example that's that... That's what annoys me. Uh, the example that comes to mind for me is uh, uh, the fact that they have this, you know, uh, unforgettable sequence where she's overdosing and they go to the house and they stab her with the needle and she wakes up. And that, that sequence doesn't end there. It goes. They go back to the house and she tells him a stupid joke and... Just the the sort of release of tension in that scene and how that scene is satisfying ending to that sequence is really amazing. Tarantino really knows how to build tension and release better than most filmmakers. But um, 
I mean, what what really stands out to me, and you know, you brought it up, Patrick, with Butch freaking out, is he lets his characters, you know, think on screen right before our eyes. I mean, I love his dialogue, and obviously, most people that are fans of Tarantino would cite that as one of his many strengths. But he has these moments, despite long stretches of dialogue with characters talking, where there's these uncomfortable silences and they almost like take shape of what feels like very organic right before our eyes. And that's something like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson does really, really effectively, even in something like, you know, that's sort of, you know, kind of hyper, you know, during the uh, high sequence in Boogie Nights, he lets the camera linger on Mark Wahlberg as he's thinking for a really uncomfortable period of time. To where, like, I remember sitting in the theater and people looking at each other going, what, what, what's happening? Why is this happening? Because people aren't used to that in movies. And, you know, the, the one of my favorite moments ever in any Tarantino movie is a very subtle one. And that's in Jackie Brown, where Samuel Jackson, you know, pulls over to the side of the road with De Niro. And the camera just slowly zooms in on him as he's thinking. And I'm like, that's something a lot of filmmakers wouldn't allow. They they would cut that out. But I think it's because Tarantino respects his characters. He he actually loves people almost as much as he loves movies. I think because he just gives them so much depth. You know, even if it's just a side character. You know, like I think he's really invested in what he's doing. Yes, he's you know a movie nerd that loves movies. But I think what he's doing in something like Pulp Fiction is kind of astonishing where, like, everything just comes together almost perfectly. Like, I, I will agree, like, the, something like Reservoir Dogs, upon rewatching, I don't know, I, I find stretches of that to be tedious. And that's surprising to me, because when I first fell in love with movies and saw Pulp Fiction, I immediately rented Reservoir Dogs and loved it. But I think there's just something that doesn't hold up about Reservoir Dogs. Um... And it could just be like, well, did we really need to, you know, have the... I think you might have mentioned this a while back, too, Patrick, about, uh, you know, Tim Roth's undercover uh, flashback. Like, to me, that wasn't as interesting as spending time with them in the warehouse, you know? But, I mean, all that is is sort of, like, um, perfected in Pulp Fiction. Like, you know, the dialogue and the characters and the homage to other things... Um, I just think it all works. And I don't know, um, there's definitely other things to bring up in his filmography that I, I think are even more special. But we'll get to that. Yeah, the only thing that I don't like, it is part of the Bush segment, but it's not the whole segment. It's just the Esmeralda Villalobos cab sequence is not, she's a little, she feels a little fake as a character. Not as, mm-hmm. not as, uh, human. Yeah, that whole cab ride's probably the weakest uh, part of the movie. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. And it was actually a lot longer. Thankfully, it got cut down. Yeah, Mike, I, I have this memory that isn't that character from another movie that he, like, produced or something? Yeah, she went on to star in this movie, Curdled, which uh, Rolling, Thunder's, Rolling Thunder Pictures put out, where she just plays somebody who cleans up crime scenes. And it was a very boring movie, if I recall. So yeah, maybe that's yeah that, that's that's something that doesn't you know stand out as a one of the more interesting parts. But I mean, I th- I remember this movie as like something I could even talk to my parents about because they thought it was really cool and you know the it was clearly 
you know, something that was brought up a lot was just the the sort of comeback for John Travolta at the time because he'd been starring in Look Who's Talking um, and, all, and a lot of things that were very forgettable. But well, that's the know, thing. Here that's he is. I, I was watching this, so I was watching this feature on the on the Blu-ray, and someone brought. I think it was um, fuck who plays who plays the drug dealer Eric Stoltz. It was something Eric Stoltz brought up, whereas everyone likes to talk about this being a comeback for John Travolta. But let's look who talking movies made so much money. He was a big bankable still star at the time. This just like made people realize, oh, he's an actor. He isn't just uh, yeah. fun. Yeah, that makes more sense, sure. But I think that's one of Tarantino's incredible strengths uh, is casting. Um, I mean, you know, even like I, I remember like reading an article where he's like, you know, oh my God, why does Kurt Russell have to be in Dreamer and, you know, uh, what's the uh, hockey movie? But <laughs> I forgot the name of it all of a sudden. Miracle? But, um, Miracle, yeah, yeah. And it's like, when is he going to be a badass again? And I I was thinking the same thing around that time because, uh, you know, the last movie I loved him in was, was Breakdown, like, you know, 10 years ago and stuff. And so casting, like, Robert Forrester in Jackie Brown might be one of my favorite you know, choices ever in, in his entire filmography. Cause I knew nothing about him as an actor other than like, okay, I think he was in medium cool. I'd seen that, but, um, wow. <laughs> like, I mean that, that, that was just a mind blowing performance for me, to, you know, seeing, and it wasn't an actor I, you know, had no frame of reference for at the time. So I, I mean here again in like Pulp Fiction, um, not, I like even just the side characters like Eric Stoltz. You know, I mean, he, he just finds he just hones in on exactly what makes you know an actor memorable and gives them a character that they can just you know perfect. And I think almost every performance in every Tarantino movie, with the exception of Kill Bill, which we can probably talk about later, um, is actually really great. Yes. <laughs> Don't you hate that? This, this always happens. <laughs> Uncomfortable silences. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is the most discussed movie on the internet ever, other than Star Wars, probably. Like, I don't know. Well, what then let's not talk about it anymore. We got. <laughs> But I, right. I, I, I'm just I'm just bringing it up like I, I I have nothing new to add. I don't want to bore anybody. I could talk about my favorite scenes, but I could talk about where what things are referencing what. But those things have already been talked about to death. It's a it's a great movie. Its greatness is kind of self evident. Um, there's not really much I can add to the conversation, so I feel like I don't want to talk. <laughs> that's 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 sort of where I am right now. Uh, in fact, in general, Quentin Tarantino is just probably going to be this is going to be one of our less interesting episodes just because there's no discovery here there's nothing anyone any one of us is going to say that's really going to be like opening the door or anything because everyone fucking knows about quentin tarantino and every single person has a take on quentin tarantino um so yeah sorry <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it maybe maybe it's boring maybe it's boring to just have a complete love fest you know i mean uh, well, it's not that it's I mean, a love fest. It's, it's just that it's a love you know, fest that's occurred a million times before. Sure, yeah. sure. 
I, th- I, th- I think it's, you know, I mean, just tiny little, you know, distinctions of, uh, you know, something like this and a lot of his later films will be interesting to bring up. But, uh, you know, it's Pulp Fiction came out 20 years ago and it still holds up and it's, you know, everything about it works. And certainly... <laughs> and and, and can, one interesting thing is that, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing in it that... that that dates it. That really, like uh, so many other phenomenons, yeah. even if even if they don't have anything in them that ties them to that specific year, it still feels like they express um, a sentiment that was common around that time, or sort of a tone of the way people were feeling. But Pulp Fiction doesn't have any of that. Like it really, I can't think of another phenomenon movie that was that big that is so integrated into pop culture and yet does not feel like a, a relic. Well, it's it's probably it's the only one of its kind, you know. You're talking yeah. you're talking about a Saturday Night Fever. You're talking about a Graduate. You're talking about, you know, the reason they become big is because they speak to an era. But the era of the '90s was sort of about postmodernism and irony and that sort of thing. It it doesn't leave as much of a stamp, you know. If this mm-hmm. was if this was the ultimate '90s movie because it was the best sports movie ever made and it happened to be about extreme sports and the X Games, like then you could go, oh yeah, it's the super fucking '90s. <laughs> those guys, uh, look at all those tribal tattoos. But you know, it's this is yeah, uh, this is a movie that isn't about the '90s. It's not influenced by the '90s. Um, I think I mean part of the reason it was even the success it was was because it was just so unlike anything else and it was so cool in that way. Um, but no, it's, it is interesting that, yeah, cause I can't think of another sort of zeitgeisty movie that is quite like that. Um, I, I guess yeah, I suppose I don't, true. I don't consider the matrix to be super nineties. Um, except other than the music, but the, no, I mean the the, yeah. the the look of the costumes and the bullet time and all that sort of it, it, it was trendy at a time, so you automatically sort of associate it with that time. Yeah, I think. and 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 I don't even though Pulp Fiction was really influential, uh, and a lot of the Pulp Fiction knockoffs you would definitely say are super dated. Pulp Fiction itself is above that. Oh yeah, and it's it's you're right about like I mean it's. There's a reason why um, we probably have a slight disconnect with something like Easy Rider, and you know, yet Pulp Fiction. Maybe it also it just helps that it came out at a time where I was impressionable, you know, and like this is kind of like what exactly I needed and didn't realize it at the time. Like, I mean, a lot of teenagers go out and do crazy shit, you know, and I saw Pulp Fiction and then just decided, okay, now I know what I want to be a part of somehow, whether if it's making movies or composing music for movies or talking about movies, I just want to be a part of this dialogue. And a lot of that has to do with Quentin Tarantino. And as obnoxious as he can be in interviews, he is fucking smart (laughs) about movies and like every anytime he brings up like a an obscure title, I'm like, well, I better write that down and watch it eventually. Because I mean, even if it's, I mean, his taste has definitely become questionable, especially as like he's put out top ten lists over the years, and you know he puts like uh, that Woody Allen movie, anything else, as a favorite in the last I don't know whatever twelve years or whatever. But I think he is just completely in tune with what makes movies so great and he's able to put them together so and, and you know if he was like a Woody Allen and put out a movie a year I don't know how it would 
turn out. <laughs> but I think it's great that he takes his time. He probably wouldn't have as much time to watch movies and smoke pot if he tried to put True. a movie here. <laughs> we can move on because I agree. What has been said about Pulp Fiction, you know, it's been said to death at this point, and we have a lot more to say about a lot of his later films that I think will be very interesting. Okie dokie. Yeah. Patrick, you mean like Inglorious Bastards? The first movie we ever talked about in front of microphones. Is that why you wanted to do it? <laughs> Maybe. Is that bad? There's a, there's a no, guy's... I just thought, uh, I just thought we, need, we need to improve on that. I mean, it's not like that's an episode that's out there for everybody to hear. But we, we, we've come a long way since then. Oh, so anyway, like when uh, when you know when Inglorious Bastards came out, Quentin Tarantino was sort of you know an established brand for quite a while. Um, you know, he made Pulp Fiction, he made Jackie Brown, he disappeared for a while. He returned with the Kill Bill movies, and the Kill Bill movies are probably his most indulgent. Sort of, um, he's obviously influenced, uh, s- sort of uh, playful movies he's ever made, and. After that, he made Death Proof, which a lot of people um, sort of received. They sort of received the whole project of Grindhouse as sort of a lark. Um, And to an extent, it sort of is. Uh, I I think it's more interesting than it often gets credit for, but it is kind of a lark compared to something like, say, Jackie Brown or uh, even the undertaking of the two Kill Bill movies. So um, uh, when Inglorious Bastards came out, it was very different. from Tarantino movies and obviously he's only released one movie since then. So to say that this is quote unquote, the new Tarantino, um, it would be a a, sort of a dumb thing to say, but, uh, he definitely, uh, with the Django and Inglorious Bastards has found a different kind of wavelength. Um, one that's more languid, uh, one that's more influenced by spaghetti Westerns and Rio Bravo. And, um, sort of these uh, long um, uh, epic kind of revenge movies that are, that sort of take place, you know, in uh, huge historical backdrops. Only the biggest possible backdrops will start. It can't just be um, a war movie. It has to be about World War II and they have to fucking shoot Hitler in the face. (laughs) And it can't just be, you know, it, it just can't, be about oppressed minority. It has to be American slavery in the antebellum South. And it's, um, so the, you know, the, these two movies feel of a pair to me and Inglorious bastards. Uh, when I first saw it, I didn't like it very much. Uh, I thought it was very dull. I thought it was weirdly uneven. Um, I, th- I thought the structure of the movie was confusing. I didn't find it just as immediately fun and intoxicating as, Kill Bill was, or as watching Grindhouse in theaters had been for me, even though at that time I also don't think I was a huge fan of Death Proof. Um, uh, so, uh, Inglorious Bastards, what it does have, though, is a really interesting script uh, challenge that he answered, which is this. It's a revenge movie that Quentin Tarantino's doing about the Nazis, so you know that the Nazis aren't going to (laughs) win. You know? (laughs) You know what's going to happen. It's not like 
it's not like, oh my god, are they going to be able to do it? Because of course they're going to be able to do it. There's no fucking way this movie ends with anything other than a glorious defeat of Nazis because it's Tarantino and he would never not indulge himself of that. Um, so what he ended up doing was he made a, a, a revenge movie where there are two separate parties at work, both concoct- concocting their plans and they sort of dovetail into each other um, towards the end. And that way, whenever you're with any storyline, um, whether it's uh, – again, I'm horrible with character names. What's her face who runs the theater or the Shoshana. Bastards? There we go. Shosana who runs the theater or the Bastards. Um, you know, there's a strong possibility that either of their plans could fail. So you are always on the edge of your seat even though you know that ultimately the Nazis will be defeated. And – he pays that off too because a lot of a lot of the way through the bastards look like their their plans totally fucked. Shosana gets murdered. Um, it really is tense all the way through, even though you know again that it won't end with anything other than the most glorious uh, killing of Nazis in cinematic history. Um, so I, I think the script is really intriguing in that way. It's far from my favorite Tarantino movie, but. Uh, I really like that part of it. I I mean, I think the main thing that people like to say uh, that is dismissive of Tarantino is that Tarantino just takes a bunch of stuff from other movies and slaps it together, and that's his movie. And I think watching, I mean, maybe not on your first viewing, but in my opinion, watching Inglorious Bastards, it's like he has an understanding of, of not just um, what those moments are, but how those moments function. So, you know, you can't just slap a bunch of scenes from uh, random movies together, uh, remake them, and have it work. It's got, you, you have to have an understanding of the filmmaking. And I think in the, t- the way he manipulates tension in Inglorious Bastards is really incredible. Like, the, the scenes in, the, in, the, in the, the bar, the underground bar, is just amazing. I, I'm, I'm always struck by the, fact, the way uh, he, he introduces the one character, the... Uh, the higher the german guy i don't i don't remember his character's name but he's sitting in this back room that you would not even know exists and it doesn't feel like a cheat to have him suddenly show up but the way he reveals it is just sort of it's it's funny and it's exciting and it it just adds to the tension the sound of this other game going on behind them and are they going to get found out and all these other factors that are going on around it and that's that kind of stuff is really incredible yeah. Um, we first saw this together, Patrick, and I was kind of with you on being a little bit more restless than usual during a Tarantino movie. And, uh, you know, not necessarily like appreciating the more dialogue heavy scenes like I did in something like Jackie Brown. And I thought it was really kind of ambitious for Tarantino to, you know, to to take a trip back in time and uh, create a story using historical events. Um, I remember thinking initially when I first saw this that I didn't I didn't know how I felt about uh, um, Christoph Waltz's decision towards the end of the movie to just simply surrender. It felt, you know, like you know, a comedic touch. Which wasn't a bad thing. I mean, I, I, I think probably, again, he's subverting expectations in a way that I'm initially questioning at first. Because, obviously, we want to see Shoshana 
you know, take out her vengeance on Christoph Waltz. And part of me is being set up for that. And again, that's like, you know, sort of tapping into the movie memory part of my brain of like, I hope it go- I hope we get to see that. I hope we get to see that. And when we don't, it initially feels like a letdown. Um, and, you know, there, there, I think in a couple of interesting criticisms that have come out about his last two movies is, is he exploiting the past and just, you know, going over the top with his, you know, sort of violent catharsis and just, you know, taking the piss out of really incredibly devastating moments in our nation's history. Of course he um, is! I know! And that's why people, when people harp on that stuff, I'm kind of surprised. And I don't, I don't see that as a negative at all. Um, I have a feeling that, I mean, this only being uh, my third rewatch, I wonder how I'm going to feel about it, you know, uh, with more rewatches, because I'm... It's it's so hard for me to pick a favorite Tarantino movie to be honest because like when I'm watching Inglorious Bastards it almost becomes my favorite movie of his when I'm watching Jackie Brown it it, oh, it still feels like my favorite movie of his uh, and I think this one just because of how he like he builds tension in the best ways in practically any of his movies I like I cannot tell you how much I love the basement scene where it's very dialogue heavy and when I first saw it I was like okay come on come on come on but now that I'm you know I'm predisposed to like know specifically what the payoff is I'm able to enjoy it instead of like analyze it um and I don't know I mean maybe there's a metatextual commentary going on whether intended or not about you know the fact that like all this sort of takes place and ends up exploding in a movie theater. And I think like, you know, whether he's trying to be sort of morally ambiguous and just deciding, okay, I'm just going to make a fun revenge, you know, action drama picture and do what I normally do. Uh, And that's the thing is like, there are people who will, you know, sort of parse like, well, this could mean this and this could mean that. Uh, but as a pure entertaining experience, I love Inglorious Bastards more and more. And whether intentional or not, I, I sort of see this movie a little bit as kind of like a battle for the soul for those who are trying to keep themselves pure while you know and wanting to overcome and conquer those who want to dominate the weak and. I think like him being very preachy lately about like trying to keep cinema pure and real. Um, you know, I understand like we're we're eventually going to be fully digital and there's nothing you can do. So it's sort of like a lost cause. And I understand like his stance on like trying to maintain the purity of film in of itself. And you know, like I want to think in my head, well, maybe the protagonists are reflections of this idea of you know, like because it's so. I'm so used to Tarantino kind of being meta heavy in some ways or another, but as like a really good entertaining experience in glorious bastard still works. And it actually makes me laugh harder and harder every time. Like I think Eli Roth is hilarious. And when they do the Italian accents, it's great. Um, and I, I don't know. I think it's again, it's, it's one of those movies where when it's over, I just I kind of breathe a sigh of relief and kind of go I'm so glad that you know somebody like this is out there making ballsy movies and not giving a fuck and just like saying this is this is it this is what I have and I'm bringing it to you and you're going to either eat it up or you won't and 
more often than not, I tend to love everything that he does. And I think this is one of those movies where I'm going to watch it more and more and love it more and more. I mean, the subtext about, you know, a movie about movies is definitely really prominent throughout the whole thing. You know, this that uh, um, the Michael Fassbender character is hired because of his knowledge yep. of the film industry. And um, specifically, the one that stands out to me is the fact that, that film is actually a weapon, uh, not, yeah. not only not only in the movie that she makes, but the, the nitrate film that she sacrifices. And the, it, like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that the only reason that Tarantino would want to see film destroyed is so that Hitler could die. <laughs> That's that's the kind of that's that that would be worth losing a, a collection of nitrate films over, um, and and the, the Daniel Bruhl character being in a movie, and um, I just think that's all that stuff is really uh, fascinating. You know, uh, they're they're talking about movies as well in the bar scene because they're doing the charades, and some of those are film characters like King Kong, and uh, even the little detail of of the fact just just general pop culture, not even movies necessarily, um, but an internal pop culture where. Um, the T- Till Schweiger character says at this range, I'm a real Frederick Zoller. Like this, th- they have these things that are going around in their world that people are tapping into and conscious of. Yeah, and there was that interesting article that uh, came out on Cracked about uh, Eli Roth's character, you know, and uh, like the fact that his last name is Donowitz, and um, that's the the father of the movie producer Lee Donowitz from True Romance. And, like, there's this sort of, like, insane over-analytical meta-commentary on, you know, why this movie fits so beautifully into Tarantino's world and yet sort of, like, reinvents it and, like, reinvents history in this, like, weird sort of movie meta way. I hate that stuff so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! I know, oh my they- god! So you like to like put little Easter eggs back and forth like that? Oh, that overwhelms every reading of this stupid movies. Is it, oh, well, you know this? You know Vince Vega, Vince Vega, and and Mr. Blonde, they're brothers. So therefore, like, oh, who gives a shit? That's not what's interesting about these movies. That's just a I know, I agree. I thought it was just really. I th- I just like find it interesting that people hone in on that stuff i mean it's because it's, it's fucking like, internet shit because you can click you can get clickbait because you can just get people to go oh we you never noticed this about pulp fiction and then they click it and it's like technically this last name was a reference to this character and therefore this character is related to this character in this universe blah, blah, blah. like the whole thing is driven by sites like cracked or buzzfeed or whatever that just want money and I hate that that is at all a conversation, and it fucking annoys me. I think, I, mean, it's, it, I think it's fun to do Easter eggs. I think it's fun that all of his movies take place in their little world. I think they're fun acknowledgments yeah. that these That's are I surreal. <laughs> I think they're fun acknowledgments that these are sort of surreal experiences, and they're they're not meant to take place in the real, real world. Um, even even though something like Kill Bill has wildly different tone than something like Jackie Brown. I like that idea, but that's all that is. And it's a fun little Easter egg, and it's not the way you fucking drive a movie, uh, drive I, a reading of a movie. I will say that, that that sort of ties into something that I think that a lot of people... Another thing the internet could probably 
do less of or learn is that Tarantino, like like Jim says, he's really into his characters and he loves his characters, and so he has this tendency to want to keep thinking about his characters and what are, what else could his, my characters do? And whenever he talks about those things, those are never going to be more interesting than doing something new. So the Vega Brothers and Kill Bill Volume Three and all of those things, those are obvious. That, like to me, it's obvious that those are never ever going to happen, and no one can ever, no one should ever be waiting for those kind of things to happen because it's just him in love with his characters and ruminating on things but he's not really engaged by that at that point he's made the movie that he's going to make about those characters and he likes thinking about them but it's not really artistically motivated yeah i hope that's true i don't i don't want to see him going back to the well you know and just like uh maybe i should make kill bill volume three just to make it a trilogy and you know satisfy everybody when i said i might do that and because, I mean, he's so good at creating these incredibly original worlds, I, I wouldn't want to see a Vega Brothers spinoff or something, you know? Yeah, no, no. But, Sorry, I just... Yeah, I mean, that shit annoys me so much, and that is just so rampant. Anytime you try to look up anything about Quentin Tarantino, that's, that's what all the articles are, is like, did you know this blank technically means blank, blank, blank? It's not. Were you, were you yeah, aware that red apple cigarettes show up in all of Tarantino's movies? And red apple cigarettes show up in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion because he was dating uh, what's her name no, no, at the time. No, no, no. So that means technically <laughs> that's part of a universe. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, it was Big Kahuna Burger. It was Big Kahuna Burger. Red yeah, apple that's, cigarettes. That's, that's, that's what showed up. No, that's really Big Kahuna is no. in From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, that's true. That's another thing to bring up later on too. Is like. When other directors take on his scripts, I don't like him nearly as much. Well, he sells the scripts he doesn't like as much to other directors. <laughs> From Dust Till Dawn was a fun little thing he just fucking threw off. That was a retread of all these other movies he had already written. Yeah, I mean that's true. I'm. I, it's interesting. You, like they, how you that can movie... you can't imagine that the process of Quentin Tarantino writing From Dust Till Dawn was anything like the process of him and Roger Avery writing Pulp Fiction. Or him writing no. Jackie Brown. It was totally different. It's a totally different context. Yeah. No, that's true. I, I It's just... I, I tend to think, like, the, the subtleties and the little nuances that Tarantino brings to his scripts are completely absent um, in stuff like True Romance and From Dust Till Dawn. I, I think they get over-directed and... I mean, obviously, those are two completely different filmmakers who have a different approach, whether, you know, people like it or not. I... I love moments of true romance, but they're just, you know, choices that Tony Scott makes. And I think it's because I am viewing it as a Quentin Tarantino world that I want to be like, oh, why'd you have to cut that? Or, you know, what? I mean, they're just like, again, sort of just expectations. Had I, I wonder, like, had I not, had I seen true romance before I even knew who Quentin Tarantino was, if I would have that, like, sort of analytical bias almost, like, this is what I want from a Tarantino movie, and it's not necessarily here, other than like incredible monologues, like you know the um, uh, the monologue that Dennis Hopper has with Christopher Walken, and they're just like things. As you know, even rewatching a couple of his movies, uh, you know, this past week, like True Romance and From Dust Till Dawn, where I kind of go, well, it's it's a shame that the directors don't really do what Tarantino does. And I'm not like saying everybody has to be that way, but um it's just it's just kind of bothersome to me with those two movies especially where like 
something like True Romance with that cast, I think deserved. I don't know necessarily the script deserved it, but like I think having all those you know elements and just sort of like coasting and having really uh, you know Tony Scott's approach to violence and things like that. I just I, I kind of tune out more and don't get as invested, especially when you have a lead played by Christian Slater, who I don't think is very good in that movie. I'm jumping all over the place, but uh, another thing that I think is interesting that connects these these last two movies that he made, that uh, I mean, like a, kill, a movie like Kill Bill and Pulp Fiction, they do, or or mostly Kill Bill does tell a single story, but because it hops around chronologically so much and uh, it moves from so many pla- so many places, um, it does uh, make um, uh, the the last two feel more like complete stories and focused on a single thing and um that's that's sort of interesting because it like you know um you think of kill bill and you don't really think of this um it, it's it keeping the fractured narrative together is is more work and somehow just sticking to one story the way it does in bastards and uh Django unchained is more feels more connected and involved in some way yeah i, I agree and I think that's something I appreciate a lot about Inglorious Bastards. It's just sort of more the streamlined, straightforward narrative. Even if there's, you know, f- flashes in time, uh, it is a little bit more consistent approach to telling a story. And um, I find something like Kill Bill to be a little cumbersome, a little exhausting, and I don't have as much, um, like, invested into the characters there because it does come across as more cartoonish mm-hmm. I think in, in, in the Kill Bill world and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just that okay maybe now he's got that out of his system yeah he's going to go on uh, to do something like Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained and it's not necessarily like a more mature approach to storytelling but he's looking outside you know in terms of uh, a historical context to create his stories, and I like that he's, you know, re- rewriting history in a very interesting way. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely in agreement with the choice to sort of uh, go back, you know, or cut back a little bit from his uh, earlier approach to uh, storytelling with cutting back and forth, you know, in and out of time, and I, th- I really like that Inglorious Bastards and uh, Django Unchained uh, feel a little bit more streamlined, you know? I like that approach, for sure. And I feel like, uh, personally, and also maybe Patrick, is, like, the 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 broken-up nature of Kill Bill is part of what is, you know, that, that might stand in the way of people fully enjoying it. I mean, I especially don't like... Uh, if we're going to segue, mm-hmm. I don't know. Sure. Uh, like, like, like uh, the, the opening to Kill Bill Volume 2... Really sets my teeth on edge. Just the stilted, obnoxious, like super fake, and then it—it's just like I don't know. I feel like I would really like the movie a lot more if I could just see the whole thing as one movie. Something about there's some sort of distance between the first the first part and the second part, and it's a little too jarring for me. I, I prefer the the sugar rush of the first part, personally. Yeah, I would agree with that. Patrick, I agree. I don't. I don't like. I don't like part two. None of the characters are three dimensional. So when it tries to make you give a shit, it's just silly. Um, yeah. 
I, I actually agree with you too in that uh, you know probably one of the best moments, if not the best moment, involves the pregnancy test. Like I think that's the Tarantino I you know grow to appreciate and wish was more apparent in both Kill Bill movies because like I I, I just get more I, I just see it more as kind of like the things that people harp on about Tarantino and like as a whole is just like well it's. Uh, you know, it's just paying homage to too much stuff, and I'm not even a big fan of the anime sequence. I know a lot of people are. Uh, I don't know. I, it's, there's just a huge disconnect for me with the Kill Bill movies. Um, the major one being like I, I don't think Uma Thurman's that strong in this. You know, especially coming from what she brought in Pulp Fiction. She's uh, in that kitchen scene with uh, Vivica A. Fox. She's super stilted and yeah, uh, pushing overly uh, aggressive line readings, and it's kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm I'm even surprised by like uh, you know some dialogue like tricks are for kids, and I don't know. Parts of it feels like Tarantino parody a little bit. Um, exactly. I and I don't like. I don't really care for Lucy Liu in the movie, and I mean, I, I just there's just a lot about the Kill Bill movies. Even though I kind of liked them when I first saw them, and I don't dislike them, uh, I, I think it would have been better as one movie. I really do, and you know, I don't know if that'll ever be, get cut that way, but it'd be it'd be interesting to see him like tweak it somehow in the in the future. I don't know if he ever will, and it's not necessary at this point, but as it stands, it's. The weakest, uh, like Kill Bill Volume One and Two and Reservoir Dogs are at the bottom for me. Well, for me, if, yeah, I mean, for me, definitely Reservoir Dogs. You know, uh, when I first agreed to be in the podcast, I thought I would be the only one. You know, it seems like uh, people still like Reservoir Dogs as much as they did when it came out. But I, not only do I not like it very much, but I actually think it's you know a lot of people say would say you know it's his worst movie but the worst tarantino movie is still a good movie i actually think it's just really a not very good movie period uh what i think is really interesting though is the part that you don't like the most which i think is the tim roth telling a joke i think that's the one point part where you can see how effective tarantino is at at building a moment and that's the one part of the movie that I'm really I'm really into the Tim Roth character because that actually feels like something to latch on to. Sure. Um, what bothers me mostly about Reservoir Dogs is it feels very artificial. Like the dialogue is very posturing and uh, overly written. I mean it has an even worse line than the Tricks of Kids one, which is, uh, where's the commode in this dungeon? I got to go take a squirt, <laughs> which is just so <laughs> – it's really, really bad. I think that's a fine line for Mr. Pink. That's totally. I think that's totally Mr. Pink's character. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think because because Mr. Pink other is so think. he holds himself so above, above everyone else. He probably fucking thought of that line getting there. I think the writing of <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is really good. Actually, I I think hmm. I I think the I what I don't like about Tim Roth's story is to me he's not the interesting character. To me, the interesting character is Mr. White. Mr. White, this guy who in a tense moment, I mean, we'll see later with Pulp Fiction, you know, you see later with Pulp Fiction, all the characters who they need when they need each other and how they rely on each other in times of need. Like, that's what the opening 
after the after the diner scene. That is what that opening scene is, and that that moment all done in one shot with the camera, you know, uh, aggressively going back and forth between the back seat and the front seat. Mister White really sounding almost incoherent, just trying to think of any way to make uh, Mister Orange feel better, like. I really thought that was that's the strongest thing, and Mr. Orange being a bleeding kind of time clock for Mr. White's sort of morality, like that to me is how he is most interesting as sort of this point of tension. And then – and obviously once those two characters walk away and you're left with Mr. Blonde at this character everyone's talking about as crazy and he does that fucking crazy torture scene, like that's already captivating – and then he dies, and then the first point in the movie where I, I feel it kind of deflates is when suddenly you find out Mr. Orange's backstory because it just doesn't amount to much. It's not, it's not very consequential. Um, it's, it, once you know that he's an undercover cop, that's finding out how he got in with them, it adds nothing to the story. Um, it's just sort of a fun digression, and it's not particularly fun yeah. to me. I, 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 do, I definitely think it's his worst movie. I think it's... Um, well, I know I, I, that's, that's not true. I think Kill Bill Volume Two is his worst movie, but I think, um, but I think it's definitely uh, close. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the I don't think the jump from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction is as drastic and crazy as as you seem to, Tyler. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know. I, I like the Mr. White character. I like Joe, and I, lo- I, I actually think the one really good performance in the movie, even though he goes a little over the top sometimes, is Chris Penn as Nice Guy Eddie. You know, and I, I don't know. I just feel like even Steve Buscemi, you know, is just a little. It's a little posturing. Um, I know Jeff Van Driesen listens to this podcast and he wrote you at one point he was trying to say that he feels that everybody is posturing and that's that's sort of a thematic point that the movie is making but hmm. i don't i mean i kind of see that but i don't see it enough in all of the characters that i quite buy that theory um, I, other than the fact that they're all very masculine and they're criminals like i don't i don't th- see them as all posturing i don't think they're all pretending to be something they're not i don't think mr blonde's mm-hmm. pretending to be something is not mm-hmm <laughs> I mean the, the the scene and the scene for me that is the worst uh, of the dialogue of the whole movie is the scene where Nice Guy Eddie comes into Joe's office and he and Michael Madsen. Yeah, that's the, that's the worst scene in the. That's definitely the worst scene in the movie. All of those, all of those back, all of those back, all of that backstory where you find out where they all came from is all not uh, not very vital and to the story. I think that's probably all the weak spot. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that too. I think um, I do. I mean, I, I, I do like the interplay between Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel a lot. I, that's the strongest points of the movie for me, where I actually you know care. And you know, I remember at the time people beginning really up in arms about Tarantino and being you know incredibly violent. And I'm like, I, when I actually show people scenes, including the Reservoir Dogs torture scene, the camera cuts away. Um, when Butch kills the pawn shop owner, you don't see the actual, you know, s- stabbing necessarily. It's that's sort of taking place off screen. And I think that's a really interesting way to deconstruct violence and not necessarily show everything. I mean, it sort of changes a little bit more, especially in something like uh, you know Django, where there's that violent shootout and there's squibs left and right. Um, but I, I mean, something like Reservoir Dogs when I first saw it, I I did really like 
just the you know how dialogue heavy it was. And but even when I first saw it, I was like, I cannot stand Tarantino as an actor. I just yeah. I cannot get past it at any point. But he does get a pass as Jimmy in Pulp Fiction. I think he's okay. He's better than he usually is. I think the two I think the two roles he's best in is as the bartender in Death Proof because mm-hmm. that yeah. is that is that almost feels like a meta joke to me. Like the director cast himself as the guy who's like, hey everybody. Uh, and everyone's like, hey, we'd love to see you! And, like, that's totally the kind of roles directors would cast themselves in. And for some reason, he doesn't bother me in Django. I think... I, wow. I think it's... I mean, I, he's it's definitely a very bad accent. It's not a good performance, but I think it is what the movie... I think maybe that that element of silliness is exactly what the movie needs at that point. Um, it bothered me the first time I saw the movie, but when I watched it again for this podcast, he didn't bother me. At yeah, all. I think I think it needs that little jolt of silliness to sort of reset itself emotionally before that final hmm. sequence. I don't know if that's uh, maybe just me justifying, but for some reason, I I mean I agree with uh, I think he's just an objectively bad Australian accent, and it's super distracting. Obviously, he hadn't cast himself in a movie since being the voice of the answering machine. Oh, no, that's not. He is in Death Proof. But, I mean, like, Death Proof, again, just feels like such a, a different thing. He hadn't cast himself in, in a movie de- of that caliber since he was the... In his, de- in his defense that he, like, I think six people or something dropped out of that role. It, w- it was going to go to a bunch of people, and he just had... He ended up having to play it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but the, that's, before we move I, on to a different That movie. sounds like a good story. That also sounds like nothing that ever happens on a major Hollywood set. <laughs> like, that's not true. <laughs> like, what, what other director have you ever known who's just like, well, Steven Spielberg didn't want to play that part in Close Encounters, <laughs> but there was kind of just a problem on the day, so he just had to show up as that one scientist. Like, <laughs> there's no other. Like, that's, that sounds like such a bullshit story to me. But um, uh, are we done with Inglorious Bastards? Well... Yeah, pretty much. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think we're we're already on to his other All stuff. Right, uh, I, I thought we were talking about Reservoir Dogs. Um, before we move away from it, though, I mean, the, the the thing that really gets to me about Reservoir Dogs is, like, something about the, the, the dialogue. And he is usually so good with dialogue, but all of it in Reservoir Dogs to me, or most of it anyway, feels really artificial. It doesn't quite connect with me. And the thing that r- stood out to me is the way it has that in common, that disconnect with... The people who would rip him off, hmm. and I, I, the the most when I watched it last, the thing that disturbed me a little bit is thinking. I, I've always thought that it's just because Reservoir Dogs is sort of out of sync for me, or something is off. But I also, it occurred to me that maybe the reason that all of these other crappy Tarantino knockoffs sound like that is because they are effectively ripping off Reservoir Dogs. I, I, I think, uh, I think, honestly. Just seeing some of the actors who are in Tarantino movies, the difference between a good Tarantino movie and a bad, ter- or a good Tarantino performance and a bad Tarantino performance is often just like, or I, the difference between good Tarantino dialogue and bad Tarantino dialogue can be a performance. I could see a version of Kill Bill where all of the bride speeches sound awesome, but that would probably require a different actress, you know. And I think mm-hmm. he one of the things that he's obviously gets a lot of notice for is just really good casting. And I think maybe Reservoir Dogs being his first film, it being his lowest budgeted film, it being probably the quickest he ever had to shoot any of his movies. There probably just wasn't rehearsal time, and that's I doubt it was actually the writing itself. Um, it was probably mm. something in the performances because a lot of their because that vibe I get 
all, I, that vibe that you're talking about getting, like, I get that from parts of Kill Bill, but I don't get that from all of Kill Bill. So I, I think it really does just require land on the performers. And I think generally he gets such good performances out of people that when he doesn't, it feels like someone imitating. It, it, it hurts his writing because his, his <laughs> writing is already a high wire act of sort of knowing, uh, you know, verbo- verboseness and monologues and references. And it's and uh, a weird combination of naturalism and heightened uh Sort of like it's a weird combination of this is how people talk and no one ever talks like this ever, and it's, yeah. it's already it's already a pretty tough challenge. Um, that if you're not a great actor and you're not up to the challenge, then it probably doesn't come off as well. He finds that balance between naturalism and that heightened world he creates so perfectly, and I think uh, you know one of the strengths in pretty much all of his movies, I'd say, is. The, how, how he incorporates um, music that I wasn't even aware of at the time, like even starting with Pulp Fiction, but there, there are just like incredible choices in something like Jackie Brown, uh, where like just a song sort of redefines itself. Like I, I was aware of the Delphonics. I might have heard that song in the past, but now I can forever associate it with you know the relationship between. Um, Max and Jackie. Like, I just, I love that he's able to do that with music, you know, as effectively as, a, you know, other directors that I love, like Scorsese and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, he, you know, he started out doing that with Reservoir Dogs pretty effectively, obviously, with, um, you know, the Mr. Blonde's torture scene. And I think that's something that has been very consistent throughout his entire career. And I just, I love that about him. And it, yeah. and I don't even even something like Death Proof where it cuts to um, you know a, a score sample from from Blowout. It's not like oh let's play spot the reference you know and a lot of people sort of see him as just you know King plagiarizer or whatever. But I don't. I always feel that he's doing it to serve the movie. So we have an we have an email from our friend Bill Ackerman. Um, Bill Ackerman says, what is your feeling about Tarantino's use of music from other movies in his own? A trend started with Jackie Brown, because uh, Jackie Brown used to cross 110th Street from... Oh, yeah, from, yeah, yeah. True. From the movie, the same name. It also uses it also uses samples from the score of Coffee. Right. Ha- has it ever bothered hmm. you? Do you think it makes the films more fun, allowing fans to play st- spot the reference? Or do you find it annoying that, say, the theme song to Sergio Carbucci's Django will always be the theme song to Django Unchained for most people? Uh, in in that specific instance, I actually think that that is one of the more unoriginal choices that he made because I love that song and the Django theme song, and it feels very perfunctory. I think the use of that particular song. Um, I'm trying to think of what what other ones stand out well, lot, from other movies. Mostly his later films, Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, has a lot of spaghetti western music. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I. I'm, I don't care for film scores. I don't listen to film scores. I don't spot film scores. If, if, if Quentin Tarantino were to drop something like the opening song from the Suspiria soundtrack or something like super noticeable, if he had, you know, if, it, if there was a, a, something from the Halloween soundtrack or something like that, or Jaws soundtrack, like I would notice that, but I tend not to notice them. So to me, it just sounds like film music, um, except it doesn't sound like modern film music, which is good. So I like I like that he does that because it saves him 
the task of hiring an orchestra and a composer to write something super bland. Which is what most directors do these days, <laughs> is they hire a composer and the composer goes, well, what if it's just this bland, generic orchestral thing? And then they go, okay, fine, <laughs> let's paste it over the movie. Yeah, I like the use of Morricone in, uh, mm-hmm. in, Kill Bill, in the Kill Bill movies. Yeah, I, I, I like what you said in your review of Death Proof, Patrick, about it feels like he's handing you a mixtape. And I think a lot of his movies, you know, not, not necessarily all of them, but... I, it's it's not like here's some of my favorite songs and I think they would be cool in this movie. They actually fit, especially in something like Jackie Brown. I love the opening and it doesn't bother me that it's like okay, well he, he you know he cop that from across 110th Street. It's actually really effective, you know. And also, I mean, it's the move that that Jackie Brown's about growing old too and like calling back to her, her moments of glory or you know the fact that he uses a Pam Greer song that she actually sang. While you know she's going to prison, I th- I think that's actually not just like being flashy and you know doing the meta thing. I th- I think it's actually serving the story he's trying to convey. I I uh, it's not a music from another movie, but I will say that the reason that I like uh, the deleted lap dance sequence in Death Proof is because it it's I think that's one of Tarantino's great uh, combinations of of Visuals and music. Disagree, one hundred percent. Couldn't disagree more. It's just a fucking yeah. lap dance to a sexy song. It's the least interesting. Yeah. It to me, it's one of his least interesting uses of music. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the extended cut of Death Proof, but that's another one where the more and more I watch it, the more and more I love it. I, 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 th- I mean, yeah, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of the other added scene, but the lap dance I like. Yeah, that's your thing. That's cool. Yeah, it's just it's just unnecessary, and it's just like I like the joke of it being removed from the real missing. I like, I, I, I it's unnecessary. It feels just gratuitously sexual in a way that is actually it's interesting given all of the movies that influence Tarantino. How reserved he is, almost in some ways, where there's like he could easily just be like, "Well, it's the kind of movie I'm making, so here are all these boobs and." Here's this and that, and obviously he, you know, he focuses on his favorite fetish, which is feet. But like, um, and asses, a lot of uh, close-ups of asses. And there's a close-up of ass in Death Proof. There's not a ton. I feel, I feel like there's at least three. There's not a lot. Um, okay. uh, but it's just, <laughs> it just, it just, it just, it feels unnecessary. I, I hate that scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have anything particularly deep to defend it with, but I found it, I found it a sufficient payoff to the the build up scene that comes before it. Yeah, I think everybody should go to Letterbox and read Patrick's review of Death Proof because um, that's what Kurt Halfyard did on the Cinecast, and I was like, right on, that's exactly he, he, wait, how he, I feel. He read the whole review. Yeah, <laughs> that's like it's like three hundred <laughs> words or something. That's ridiculous. I know. No, but you summed it up beautifully. Whether if it was a sleep-deprived uh, construction or not, it's actually, you know, uh, it's something about it. You know, when I first saw it, too, I was just like, well, that was good for what it was, but it wasn't very deep or interesting. Or, But, I mean, that is actually, like, one of the best examples of a, you know, drive-in B-movie without, like, you know, necessarily being overt. <laughs> like, I think it's actually its own thing on top of it and actually really 
well written with the characters and you know giving respect to women and letting them have naturalistic dialogue and not i i mean people find it tedious i don't i mean what i think is uh, what what some people seem to miss i guess um is that even though it is really overwrought it's like calling attention to itself there isn't there almost isn't a single uh, scene where they're talking about something that isn't exposition for things that are going to happen later yeah that's a little foreshadowing going on mm-hmm. yeah Obviously, their whole, their whole, the the second group of girls, their whole breakfast conversation about falling in the pit is meant to be set up for her uh, survival. Yeah, hmm. well, that makes sense. Totally. I mean, there's there's just something about like you know wanting to recreate uh, a you know grindhouse movie and having it kind of like almost hyper aware and you know a little a little gimmicky with something like Planet Terror, and yet this works completely on its own. And I think that's just, again, because of Tarantino's love of character and respecting an actor like Kurt Russell. And, you know, the, the car crash set to that oldie is just one of the best things in all of his movies. I just, I, it's incredibly tense, flawlessly executed. And, I mean, I never, ever once feel restless watching Death Proof. I think everything about it is really strong. And I, I know he considers it to be his worst movie, but <laughs> I don't <laughs> at all. Yeah. I want to hear Patrick talk some about what he likes about Django Unchained. Oh. Yeah, um, me too. So, uh, I don't know. There's some things that people just generally don't like about Django Unchained, which I just I just don't. Like, people complain about the pacing. They... Uh, at, really? Yeah. Hmm. I, at first, I thought... I just assumed that that was people wanted to sound smart, and they just wanted to, like, say, Oh, yeah, I totally noticed... Uh, that the editor was different this time, like, and that uh, Sally Menke didn't edit Django Unchained, and therefore it's totally different now. And I wanted to be the one to notice that because I are nice smart. No. That, and I don't think that's the case. That, that's just sort of that was my first instinct because I'm, I'm just so I just think it's so perfectly paced. There's really no scene that isn't vital other than the wacky KKK people, um, which I do think is funny. It's just weird that there's just a comedy sketch in the middle of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> like a, like, and when I say a comedy sketch, I don't mean like a a, a, com- a comedic sequence. I mean a fucking college ass comedy sketch. Like you go see a college sketch comedy group that like they're <laughs> surely going to be a sketch just like the one where the, it's like, whoa, the KK. Let's make fun of the KKK, and it's like, well, isn't it funny they wear hoods? Blah blah blah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a weird thing to include in the movie, and I, I I think it's funny on its own, but I don't think it works with the movie. Um. But uh, so um, I think it's paced perfectly. I think a lot of people wanted that climax, that climactic gunfight to be the climax of the film. Um, But I think ironically, I think a lot of those same people complain that Django wasn't the lead character of the movie, which I also think is insane because every single movie is from his perspective. I'm sorry. There is a guy across the street. Um, he's been standing in this driveway, staring up at my window for the past two hours. <laughs> this is really disconcerting. I don't know what this guy's up to. He, I think he's like hmm. left for a couple minutes to get some more smokes, and then he just comes back out and he's just smoking and staring, and he's just standing motionless. I would think he was Michael Myers, except there's no mechanics jumpsuit on him. He's just wearing jeans and a, a weird button-up white shirt. Okay, I'll continue. Um... <laughs> Maybe he's really compelled by your conversation. Yeah, that he's must be it. He he must he must have superhuman hearing, and he likes listening to me bullshit. Um, 
so I think Django Unchained uh, is an really really interesting because it tap dances through a minefield, which is it takes one of the it takes like the most horrific holocaust in American history and it makes a fun action movie out of it. And I mean, I, 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 if you want to listen to the best of uh, 2012 episode, I do talk about this. So uh, I've, I've oh, talked yeah. about this before on the podcast, but. Uh, the most compelling thing for me about the about the Django Unchained is that it is a narrative that subverts the white savior. So a lot of people are like, oh, Django isn't the main character. Schultz does all the talking. Schultz is the one who frees him. Schultz is the one who sets up the plan and everything. Um, and if you, you know, I don't watch the movie like that because to me, the, the first scene in the bar where Schultz is just shoots the guy and goes, oh, go get the sheriff. Um like you're, you don't know what the fuck's going on. It's not from Schultz's perspective. You think, holy shit, this guy's crazy. Django's with this fucking crazy person, um, and Schultz is—he loves to think of himself as great. He's better than all those other white people. He, as an abolitionist, therefore he doesn't believe in slavery, and he even talks to Django like he's a real human, and therefore he's so great. And he saved Django, and it's this whole white savior narrative that is. Uh, subverted as once they get to Candyland because once Django starts taking charge, Django gives up so much. He becomes the thing he hates the most uh, and Schultz freaks out and does not trust him at all. They are no longer partners. It's clear that Schultz never thought of them as equals. He's looking at Django. He's like, what the hell, what the hell are you doing? You're, you're scaring me. Like, this isn't the part of the plan. Hey, why don't you cool it? All of a sudden, he doesn't trust Django even though this is all Django's territory. And um, Schultz screws everything up. The moment where Schultz just yeah. blows away Leonardo DiCaprio, where when he blows away Candy, like that is just him. That's the biggest middle finger in the world. They could have done what they wanted. The whole reason they were there in the first place was to save Django's wife. And he goes, eh, "Well, I, I I don't want to shake this man's hand because uh, it's a point of pride with me. So I guess you guys are on your own. Fuck you." Uh, I couldn't resist. He has that fucking shit eating grin, like. It's such a great subversion of the white savior narrative because he because he considers himself equal as long as he is more equal than Django is. It's a, you know it's <laughs> it's the animal farm thing, and so once again hmm. Django is in chains. Once again Django is back in bondage, and now we can have Django free himself. And not only does he free himself, he frees himself using his wit. He talks. He talks to the Australian slave, uh, slave traders into freeing him. He could have come back to Candyland with those Australians and and come with a posse, but he explicitly denies white help. He does not want white people. The thing about Schultz is Schultz operates inside of the system. Everything Schultz does, he gets great delight in that he can walk into a bar and shoot a guy in the face and then be like, well, it's all legal. So, you know, sneak into places in false pretenses and then pull out a piece of paper saying, well, it's legal and I'm part of the government. But Django has no use for the for the fucking government because Django is a black man while slavery still exists. So, so Django is sort of this just – he just gets rid of it all. There's no – he doesn't want to do it the legal way. He doesn't want to do it the way with white people helping him. He's going to do it his fucking way and that means all the white people who are slave traders die. All the white people who are related to slave traders die <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and Samuel L. Jackson dies too. And I think that's – I think 
for Quentin Tarantino, who has thumbed his nose at the idea of pol- political correctness, he seems like the kind of guy who is just not thoughtful about that sort of thing. And it doesn't really hurt his movies because his movies are so fantastical. And he actually is very good about writing good black characters and good female characters and, and being inclusive in a lot of ways. Not all the ways. There's – if you think about it, the only actual queer character in any, any of his movies uh, would be, I guess, the two pawn shop owners. But like – so like – and the whole, you know, would you give a man a foot massage? It's sort of like, oh, it's self-evident that, that would, that's like the most uh, repugnant thing that they can imagine. And, you know, like there's I – could, I, could, I could see – I'm not saying Quentin Tarantino is or isn't homophobic. But he – that's the one sort of place he isn't inclusive, I'll just say. But at, at any rate, like he doesn't strike me – he never struck me as the kind of person who's thoughtful about that sort of – the sorts of things. He strikes me as a very – self-involved person who loves his own pet interests and explores them and happens to be a brilliant artist so he when he explores them he makes great films but like the whole criticism of quentin tarantino to this point in his use of the n-word and how and you know spike lee saying oh he wants why why does he love that word so much why does he want to be black and sort of that idea and like this movie addresses that in a really weirdly thoughtful way that you and it's still – I mean it's still a movie written and directed by a white dude about a avenging slave. So there's still like some elements where it's like, eh, I don't know. This is still maybe a little gross. <laughs> like there's still elements <laughs> that are questionable. But it's still just way more thoughtful than you would ever expect from a movie like that about uh, race relations and about racism. And in the throughout the whole movie, racism isn't – we hate black people. Racism is an institution. Racism is the way that it allows uh, it allows minorities to be mistreated. Racism isn't just the specific slave owners. Racism is the whole fucking world that surrounds it, the whole industry and all the industries. And like to me, that is a more interesting um, sort of critique of slavery because you can say slavery doesn't exist now. So here's a thing about. Here's the thing about something that used to exist that was horrible, and now it's gone. So good work, Abraham Lincoln. You solved the problem. But when you're talking about institutions and you're talking about sort of the legacy and stuff, then suddenly it speaks more to modern times. Like if you – I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie CSA, Confederate States of America. Mm-mm. No. Like, so that was a <clears> fake <throat> mockumentary about what if slavery still existed, and the whole point of it wasn't that it was this crazy idea like, oh my god, what if slavery still existed? The whole point of it was – there were, you saw all of these television shows that were basically black sh- – like instead – there was a show that was basically cops, but instead of cops, it was runaway slaves. And you know that's the satire is that slavery does still exist in some kind of form, You know that the legacy of it still exists and that this isn't actually a fantasy sort of idea. And I think the fact that – again, the fact that racism is treated as an institution as opposed to a thing individual people do to other individuals – uh, is sort of interesting, and I think it's I think it's easily my favorite script of his because of all these things. Um, I don't hmm. know if it's as perfect or as int- or just as to- like totally interesting as Pulp Fiction because it still very much is a spaghetti western and it exists in that genre and it, it, with those influences and it's a much it's uh it's a much more kind of calculatable kind of entity or whereas pulp fiction is sort of its own very unique thing but i love django and chain for uh those reasons i think it's really smart my favorite is probably always going to be jackie brown and 
Um, I mean, it is based off of incredible source material. Um, you know, Elmore Leonard's phen- phenomenal writer, and just but changed change significantly. I've read, I have, yeah. I've read Rum Punch. It is not at all. Uh, I mean, not. I shouldn't say not at all, but. Uh, Tarantino does the thing that you want directors to do when you or what you want screenwriters to do when they're adapting material, which is he finds the story he wants to tell within the material and then he tells that. Um, mm-hmm. It's he is not a faithful adaptation of Rum Punch at all, but not the least of which being that Jackie is a is a white character in the book. Right, right. No, I, I, I mean, I just I, there's just everything about you know from from the cast. You know, even even someone like Michael Keaton and I, I just like individual scenes that all just seamlessly fit together in a perfect way. And it's never it's it's a movie that's not as showy as all of his other films. I think it's you know um, there's an organic flow to the film, and the performances themselves aren't you know pushy or flashy in any way. I I think it's just the perfect realization for many of his strengths, you know, uh, self-actualization within a character, um, you know, nothing just feels out of place. I I love every single moment in this movie, and I love revisiting this world with these characters because they're so fully realized. And, you know, the idea of this movie sort of kind of being about relevance and trying to stay relevant, and the fact that she breaks free of kind of her, you know sort of mundane job and then her you know ties to a a drug dealer and you know she gets to break free with a really sort of uh selfless character played by uh robert forrester i think like their relationship together is probably my favorite in all of tarantino's movies i agreed i find it i find it incredibly refreshing and very moving when they you know finally connect physically at the end because it's all sort of being built up and when it actually happens it, it brings a smile to my face it's i don't know i this is i don't know I, I, it's everything about jackie brown and you, i had to defend it like crazy when it first came out because everybody wanted pulp fiction part two or at least some variance with a lot more violence and a lot more you know uh, just flashiness to it and the fact that he sort of did a 180 i respected that even more exactly yeah, just a few quick thoughts of mine on Jackie Brown is like, like you were saying before when you talked about uh, Travolta. I think that um, the way that um, thematically or or the char- the basis of the character of Max Cherry is this guy who's being who's in the routine and he's being lifted out of his doldrums. I think the way that that dovetails with what what Quentin Tarantino is doing for Robert Forrester and the way he rises <laughs> to the challenge of being in this role. I think that's what makes that role stand out as one of the best things that Tarantino has done in terms of finding an actor and giving him a role that really allowed him to showcase his talent. Um, I also, uh, another thing dumb people like to say is that, that, that Roger Avery is responsible for Pulp Fiction. And um, even though he is adapting Rum Punch, you know, I think the, the, the fact that he can do Jackie Brown is pretty obviously just blows that theory away. Like there's no reason that you would, you could actually say that having seen all the movies that he's made since. Um, I, will, I will say, um, eh. I, I, having read the uh, the book on Miramax um, by Peter Biskin, I can't, god damn it, I can't remember the name of it right now, um, but it was about sort of the rise of independent cinema and Miramax. Um, Tarantino kind of muscled Avery out of the credits where 
Um, hmm. Because basically Tarantino wanted it to cut right from the end of Pulp Fiction to written and directed by Tar- Quentin Tarantino. And he couldn't do that if he only if he was the only one who directed it, but him and Roger Avery were on the screenplay. So he so he got Roger Avery to sort of step down to a story by credit. And I think I think it is sad a little sad how Roger Avery kinda got screwed out of the the notice for Pulp Fiction and how the narrative of Pulp Fiction is that that was Tarantino, where actually, um, at least according according to this book, um, but seems this book didn't seem to have any kind of grudge against Tarantino and seemed to be depicting things kind of fairly. Um, basically, um, the reason Pulp Fiction is sort of such an amalgamation of parts is it is an amalgamation of parts. It's sort of all of these different things that they had talked about. Um, and written down for when they were working together in the video store and re- re- obviously refined and stuff. But like it, it makes it amount to be a lot more collaborative partners than is often told. Um, so yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's true. And I do feel you know like he he seems to have gotten really you know pushed out of the spotlight. But I also think that the movies that he's made since then are not indicative of very much. I guess. You know, Silent Hill doesn't really doesn't really scream from the writer Eesh. of Pulp Fiction. I guess. Sure. Um, and then the last thing that I was going to say is that the the song that Jim cites, the Delphonic song, that's the one song of any Tarantino movie where if I hear that song, then I feel like I gotta watch the movie. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> well, I think we're ready to give our top three, and this is one of the more difficult ones for me. So I don't want to go first. So there. Uh, I can go right, first. Go Yay! <laughs> um, I would say Jackie Brown, number one, uh, Inglorious Bastards, number two, and Pulp Fiction, number three. Oh, my God. That's mine. Is <laughs> it? Crazy. Yeah. You like Inglorious yeah. Bastards more than Pulp Fiction? I do now. Hmm. All right. <laughs> hmm. I, just, I just think the end when the, the, when the movie theater blows up, oh. that, is, that is so satisfying. Yeah. Mine is. Uh, I mean, they're all three A plus movies in my mind. So sure, sure, but yeah, it's just surprising. Um, I guess my, mine is a uh, Jackie Brown number one, um, Pulp Fiction number two, and Django and Chain number three. Splendid. Thanks so much, Tyler, for being on. It was great talking with you. Seriously, no problem. Yeah. I, I was just, you know, I, I. I I'm always surprised when somebody actually cares about anything I wrote. You know, I'm happy with what I write, but I just I don't want to assume that anyone's actually. I never assume that anyone's listening to me. So when Patrick messaged me, that was really nice. Aww. <laughs> Good job, Patrick. Sure. And I want to um, go ahead and apologize. I'm super depressed right now. I don't know what what it is, but I feel like I've, I've, I was just sort of a depressed asshole in this episode. So uh, apologies, listeners. You, you didn't come across that way at all. Okay. Well, yeah. That's how I no. felt. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sorry you feel that way. I, I, I really wish there was, uh, you know, a way out of that. You have a guy staring at you out from outside. That too. So. That's going to be distracting. That might make me more, more anxious. Yeah. Honestly, is he gone? Nope. Hmm. <laughs> same place. Okay. Standing in the same place. You have a chain lock, just in case. Uh, <laughs> What's that do? Any good? No, no. But, but I, I, hmm. I, I have a knife. All right. So that person, is, that person is Doug Lyman. Oh shit! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, in that case, I should be fine because he clearly doesn't know how action happens. <laughs> nice. <laughs> he wouldn't know how to stage a fight scene in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would probably just start wiggling real fast and think that somehow I would die. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Boy, oh, boy. All right. Um, you can find me over at instantgym.com. I've been sporadically writing reviews here and there. It's, it hasn't been consistent, but I'm also going to start a, a column where I, once a week I watch a, a movie I haven't seen um, that would fall under the movie or fall under the category of road movies probably um so that you can find at the film takeout.com and i'm at twitter at instant gym and letterbox at instant gym uh you can find me at fuck yeah horror movie boyfriends.tumblr.com that's uh, i guess that's sort of my main homepage. everything i'm about is on fuck yeah horror movie boyfriends.tumblr.com <laughs> Such as uh, Steve McQueen in the Blob uh, making faces. Um, I'm uh, I'm Patrick Rapol on Letterboxd. Um, yep, that's true. And Tyler, what about you, Tyler? I write for DVD Talk, and I also write for SharkTank.com, which is Shark with a C. I wrote a popular article called. Uh, this isn't just about Star Wars, the five dumbest arguments against gender diversity, so a lot of people like that. And mm. I have a column there about video games or any games that got turned into movies. Interesting. Uh, All right, I'll I check will that th- out. I will throw out there as well, just because I want to, not because I want to put you guys, put pressure on you guys, but because uh, I want to see if any other listeners are in tune with me. Like I said, to, I've told Patrick that I really want to hear you guys do Seijin Suzuki. As a, one of the directors, yeah, because I'm a huge fan of yeah, his and movies. I haven't seen any of them. I've heard of Bra- yeah, I've heard of here. I've heard of Branded to Kill, and that's that's all I really know is that he did a cool crime movie once. Hmm. Yeah, I'll definitely look look into him. And uh, yeah, Branded to Kill is a Criterion collection, right? I've I've been seeing. I saw that one at Barnes and Noble when I was shopping recently. I was tempted to pick it up. A couple of his movies. I believe. Are. Hmm. Yeah, with with the one that's in an Eclipse set, I think he has six movies in the Criterion Collection. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll add him to the calendar for sure. That'd be great. Um, our next episode, I'm I'm gonna go out of town. Uh, got got a lot of stuff going on at the end of the month here. I'm going to New York for school and to go with my uh, dear friend Heather to a cheese invitational where she's going to be talking a lot about cheese so i'm supporting her there with that um which is actually incredibly exciting and i'm trying to put together a big food related event here um i'm actually planning on recreating the movie blood diner at the downtown market in grand rapids um that'll be great I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to be around for the Samuel Fuller episode. Uh, I am a fan of Shot Corridor, so um, that'll be great if you guys bring that one up. Um, I, I pick up on South Street. That's the one that I yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that one's great. I'm excited. Yeah. I've only seen Park Row, and I like that movie. Um, I uh, I will be happy if the episode happens, but I don't know how I'm recording it yet. So hopefully, we'll figure that out. Oh, I got an idea, and I'll talk with you very briefly right after we hang up the phone. Okay. Right after we close out the episode, which we should do. So stay tuned, everybody, for next episode, Samuel Fuller. I believe guest Kurt Halfyard will be joining Patrick, and that I greatly look forward to, and you should as well. 
So thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for the Samuel Fuller episode. Goodbye. Bye. I would still like Little Children. Little Children's a movie I loved when it came out. And now, oh yeah, I remember that was one of the first. I was like, eh, it was okay. And you're like, no, it's great. Yeah, that's what I sounded like too. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I remember. I remember when you were like, meh. Five Hundred Days of Summer is the greatest movie about relationships ever. (laughs) (laughs) Meh. Oh god, I don't want to be reminded of that ever. I don't know you, what happened. At, you, but at you, least didn't, you saw the light. Mm. I think it was like a cartoon anvil dropped in my head after I walked out of that movie, and then I started to think that. I think. Then I was I, like, "Oh wait a minute! Other movies exist." That's right. I think you. I think it was. I think it was around the time you also went. Meh. Joan of Arcadia is one of my favorite shows. Meh. It is. <laughs> still, oh. it still is one of your favorite shows. Well, I haven't like rewatched it recently, but it's, it's not a bad show. Okay. Well, I mean, it it lacks a certain talking animal element.